released from its time capsule, our 2020 year in review, coming up on So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 102 of So Many Insane Plays, our 2020 vintage year-in-review show, including our coveted Moxie Awards, and a special bonus segment where Steve and I discuss shaping the vintage community. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Good to be with you through a, a wild year, Kevin. Mm, very much, very much. If any of you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or themanadrain.com. have announcements for this show, partly because uh, there's not too much going on in the ways that we normally announce things, but also because we have so much to discuss here. In fact, we have a show jam-packed with not only our normal year-end content, but also a bit of a holdover topic regarding the vintage community from our episode 100 spectacular that we just could not shoehorn into that epic series of, of content. So we're going to be talking about our normal vintage year-end content here, but we're also going to discuss some vintage community issues and ways that we believe uh, we can help move forward and improve our collective community that we all share. We're going to start by talking about sort of a timeline of the big picture issues for the year, talk about the, the community topics that we want to get to, and then we'll finish up with some detailed data about how the vintage format progressed throughout the year and we'll end with our Moxie Awards, as we like to do. So, Steve, how do you want to begin with talking about the tent poles of what occurred during 2020 for Vintage? Well, since this is a podcast and we don't have the assistance of visual aids, why don't we try and paint a cal- overview calendar portrait for our listeners? Just at a very high level, what are kind of the, the beats of the year, mm-hmm. you know, the key events before we dive into what they mean or their significance or what they entailed, let's just you know outline what happened and then we'll dive into the whys and wherefores. Yeah, sounds good. Do you want to run it or shall I? Well, let's start with January. Why don't you tell us what happened? Well, January featured the release of an important set, Theros Beyond Death, uh, bringing us some important cards, which we'll cover in detail later. But it started, uh, it started the year outright, I would argue. And then there wasn't another set release for a couple of months, takes us into April. The beginning of the second quarter kicked off with Ikoria, Lair of Behemoths, another very important set. And in particular, Ikoria brought us the Companions, which bring us the next two big tent poles of the year, really. <laughs> in May, just a month following Ikoria, Luris was banned in Vintage, a very important banning, which we'll discuss in well, detail from a number of it, different perspectives. Yes. Ignore me. And Keep in going. addition to Luris's <laughs> in addition to Luris's banning in May, we also received Commander 2020. Now, the releases of Ikoria and Commander 2020 are noteworthy because they were spread across April and May in a weird way because uh, of COVID issues with production for Ikoria. It was the first set 
uh, I don't know if it, it's fair to say the first set in Magic's history, technically, but definitely the first set of note in a long time where there was an actual delay in the physical production of cards. Significantly yeah. so. But So that means that the Ikoria and Commander 2020 releases are a little bit odd. You were going to see effectively that they're available in our data in April, but the cards didn't come out until May uh, to be in people's hands physically. But that brings us then to June. And hot on the heels of the Luris banning in May, June brings us a ban and restricted update, which most notably changed the rules for how companion functioned a somewhat unprecedented kind of ban and restricted update changing a fundamental rule for a brand new mechanic in addition in june we got our bans of a handful of cards for inclusiveness and racism ideals and that included cards like invoke prejudice cleanse stone throwing devils praetis gypsies jihad imprison and crusade we'll talk about some of the impacts of that later on as well July brought us two sets, Core 2021 as well as Jumpstart. Jumpstart we did not review for Vintage, but had a, had a minor impact. And J- July also featured, importantly, Gen Con and online events as part of Gen Con. We're going to dig into that as one of our topics. Fast forward to September with the release of Zendikar Rising, followed by October and Eternal Weekend Online, the first ever fully online Eternal Weekend also in October, though, was the release of the online availability for Secret Lair, The Walking Dead, one of the topics that we'll hit on. Then in November, most recently, we get Commander Legends, which we have not fully reviewed for its vintage impact yet. So that's the way the year shook out at a high, high level. But before we dig into a lot of the detailed details of how the metagame shifted, how cards banning and coming and going impacted the format, We want to talk about something that was also very important at many points throughout the year of 2020, and that is our community as players and with the extended community of the Wizards of the Coast and the people who design and and make magic and all... And organize. Yeah, and organize magic and people who both generate the cards and are responsible for organizing tournaments. And it all centers around concepts of diversity and inclusion and how we sculpt not only our community as members of it but how the game interacts with the community interacts with the designers interacts with the events that we all partake in we have some difficult and challenging issues to face as a community and it's important for me for us that is the two of us on this show to speak specifically to the portion of the magic community that we represent that is you and i steve that is cis het white men. Conversely, it's important for me to specifically not speak for any other groups. We've gathered several examples from other members of our communities to share that better represent the portions of the, the community that they represent. We're going to have a lot of references in this section, and we'll make a lot of links available to you in our show notes. But Steve, in order to be clear about the issues we want to discuss here, You've got some key terms that you want to define for our audience so there's not confusion, right? Right. I, I'll get into those in just a moment. Uh, we're going to get into you know the data of the year, but as one of the moxies that we give away every year is most significant story or biggest story of the year. Mm-hmm. And it really is unprecedented that Wizards... So part of what happened was there was a series of racial incidents culminating in the horrendous, horrific murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. but also, you know, Breonna Taylor and the encounter in New York 
a Central Park and and Ahmed Arbery and in Atlanta and and this was precipitated what the the news media has called the racial reckoning of 2020. Really, what it was specifically was a series of uprisings around the country. Really, the largest um, the Black Lives Matter protests and demonstrations are, depending how you measure it, the largest uprising or series of demonstrations in American history. Um, in the 1960s, there was a series of uprisings in about 100 cities, over 100 cities, in 1967, following a series of police encounters. But there had never, there had been, I think it was over a thousand documented demonstrations in the summer of 2020, Kevin, um, and then uh, beyond, outside the United States. And a significant number of those were in predominantly white counties or communities. So it wasn't just as it was in the 60s, you know, in predominantly black communities or non-white communities. So part of what happened was in arena after arena, there was a greater recognition, polling indicated, of what some call systemic racism or institutional racism, and there are other there are other terms. And so uh, Wizards of the mm-hmm. Coast, in the midst of this, took unprecedented action, which was to ban... It, it banned... Uh, a series of cards that it asserted depicted racism and magic, and then provided a fairly brief statement to accompany the bannings, which we'll excerpt a bit of. But, but I think it's important to understand the context in which this occurred. Um, and so this isn't banning for logistical reasons. These aren't bannings for power level reasons. These aren't bannings for um, uh, feasibility reasons, you know, uh, ability reasons, you know, um, mechanical. With, with chaos or <laughs> mechanical, right? Um, or, you know, logistics as with Scheherazade. So, Kevin, why don't, why don't you briefly read the key excerpts from the announcement? This happened on June 10th, which was, you know, just in the midst of the, of the Floyd demonstrations, Black Lives Matter movement. And, uh, and then also briefly remind everyone which cards were banned before we get into the definitions of that I want to talk about. So I'm quoting Steve from the Wizards of the Coast post on June 10, titled Depictions of Racism in Magic. One quote from their first opening paragraph is, There's no place for racism in our game, nor anywhere else. Skipping ahead, to that end, we will be removing a number of images from our database that are racist or culturally offensive, including Invoke Prejudice, Cleanse, Stone Throwing Devils, Pradesh Gypsies, Jihad, Imprison, Crusade. And they're replacing those card images with the following statement. We have removed this card image from our database due to its racist depiction, text, or combination thereof. Racism in any form is unacceptable and has no place in our games, nor anywhere else. Additionally, these cards will be banned in all sanctioned tournament play. Sanctioned. Mm-hmm. Now, it's worth noting, Steve, so, that this, this language has been revised since it was posted because uh, yes. originally they didn't have quite as much detail with respect to cultural sensitivity. Uh, the whole right. thing was phrased entirely around racism initially. Exactly. That's exactly right. So there's a, there, there's a couple other things I want to point out uh, in addition to what you just mentioned. One is that they, they do situate this statement in the context of the Floyd demonstrations. They say the events of the past weeks and ongoing conversations about how we can be better, how we can better support people of color have caused us to examine ourselves, our actions, and our inactions. We appreciate everyone helping us recognize when we fall short, we should have been better, we can be better, and we will be better. To that end, as you said, they're removing these things. Then at the end, they say, there's much more work to be done as we continue to make our games 
communities and companies more inclusive. Mm. Know that we work every day to better, to do better, and we that we hear you. We look forward to sharing more of our plans with you as our games and organization evolve. So there's a lot here. What we want to focus on is what can we propose to do beyond just banning cards? Because uh, inclusion goes beyond, I think, and I think, you know, I'm speaking for myself, but it goes far beyond just removing a few cards from uh, sanctioned play. And I think, you know, the old school community, look, this announcement has, I think, fair to say, been received, uh, there have been divergent responses to this announcement. The old school community has, I think, been less receptive in some ways, but it also has taken the spirit of it, I think, very seriously, uh, in the sense that although the old school communities have by and large decided not to uh, ban these cards, there are exceptions, um, they have uh, done significant uh, work in terms of raising money for uh, nonprofit organizations and advocacy organizations who support and are supported by the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and so uh, there's a lot here, but the thrust of what Kevin and I are going to talk about is what can we do better? And how can we get beyond what I will call symbolic action to meaningful change? I'm not saying that removing, let me be clear, I'm not saying that removing these cards, or at least a certain portion of them, is merely symbolic, but I think we there's a lot more that can be done and should be done. And so we want to come up with a few recommendations that we think move beyond this first step here. Right, Kevin? Mm-hmm. And we want to make those recommendations on a couple of different levels because we're right. talking about actionable work on the part of Wizards, on the part of tournament organizers, and on the part of us as a community. So so definitions. So first of all, let's let's talk about just the definition of racism to begin with. So racism historically, it's, there's some disputes about the origin of the term Generally, it's regarded as going back to Ruth Benedict in the 1940s. Um, before that, it doesn't mean there there wasn't you know the concept of racism, but it didn't have that articulation. There were analogs for it that didn't actually use that specific term. Um, and racism, generally, in in both in law and also in kind of cultural practice, generally refers to uh, what we call interpersonal or inst- individual racism, which is uh, a set of beliefs in the superiority or inferiority of certain racial groups or discrimination on the basis of race that's motivated by either racial hatred or racial stereotypes or animus. Um, And so, you know, for the last 40, 50 years, that framework of racism has really animated not just, as I said, law, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, so on and so forth, but also it has animated kind of the broader public discourse. Uh, in the 19, late 1960s, there was uh, Stokely Carmichael and a, and a colleague wrote a book introducing the term institutional racism, which remained mostly, you know, I would say in the niche of, you know, social justice movements and civil rights movement didn't really gain a lot of broader public purchase. But basically the difference between institutional racism and Interpersonal racism is that institutional racism refers to uh, inequalities that are generated within institutions or markets, even in the absence of individual racial animus or racial discrimination. So the classic case in law is is a case called Griggs versus Power Duke Company, which was a company that 
uh, used to have racially discriminatory hiring practices and then immediately after the adoption of the 1964 Civil Rights Act replaced those explicitly racial practices, discriminatory practices, with facially race-neutral practices that had the same effect. So it institutionalized racism in a way that wasn't superficially obvious in law, meaning facial, but actually was designed to have the same effect. And so there was a recognition that you didn't actually need, you know, to be a racist or a racist actor to have racial inequality based upon the context of racial, right, racialized inequality. Um, you could have racialized outcomes. And then more recently is the concept of systemic or structural racism. And there are even less agreement about those terms, but generally speaking, it refers to, you know, in, whether you're talking about public health or sociology, you get different definitions. But generally, systemic or structural racism is a recognition that markets and po- policy and uh, institutions interact to produce racial inequities, even in the absence, again, of an individually racist actor. That is, you can have different systems interacting without intentionally being discriminatory and nonetheless have racialized Outcomes. How could that happen? Well, take the criminal justice system, for example. If, um, if police disproportionately, uh, patrol black neighborhoods and then therefore disproportionately arrest black people and then disproportionate, then the prosecutors will disproportionately prosecute black people, which will lead to disproportionate incarceration and disproportionate sentencing and disproportionate parole and disproportionate reentry and so on and so forth. So even if the police, you could debate, are or are not racist or racially motivated, you can still have policies and practices and arrangements that produce racialized outcomes. And even if the police are racist, maybe the judge isn't and maybe the prosecutor isn't, right? But you still can have racialized outcomes. And you can analyze that through health context. So COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted people of color, specifically African-Americans and Latinx people. There's a lot of data on that, both to have higher rates of infection, of uh, hospitalization and deaths um, per capita basis, um, and there are different structural reasons for that. So I'm not, I'm not going to dive any more deeply into those definitions, <laughs> but the point is that individual interpersonal racism is different from institutional racism, which is different than systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And I think it's clear to say that the depictions of racism in perhaps the most notorious case on these cards, doesn't really fall into, I think, a structural racism model. It's more a symbolic form of racism. One, You could say it's institutional racism to the extent that the most notorious card was um, cataloged using a white supremacist, uh, clearly white supremacist uh, file number. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's going on there? Let's not, without delving too much into that, we don't need to classify what what this means, but I basically what I'm getting at is that to remedy these different forms of racism require different solutions, right? You can't you can't remedy structural racism or systemic racism in healthcare provision or in the criminal justice system by prohibiting discrimination in hiring or you know by just asking people to take sensitivity training. Or you have to go further than that. Mm-hmm. So the solutions have to fit the problem. Um, let's just expand, continuing our definitions a little bit, let's expand beyond racism. So what do we mean by diversity? Um, I'm not going to pull these definitions from, um, you know, uh, 
tracks or the most cited works on this. I'm I work in 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 the I do work in this field, so I am just going to you know speak pull a definition from experience, a working definition for us. One of the most important things I think that we will be talking about is how do we promote and sustain diversity in magic, and that's probably most important when we're talking about what Wizards does in terms of its teams. Um, diversity basically refers to ensuring that an institution or environment has people from different backgrounds. And not only that they're present, but that they have a say, that they have voice and are able to fully participate, right? And so when you diversify an institution, say an institution of higher education, the point of that is you're, you know, promoting student body diversity that will ensure that people of different backgrounds one form of diversity being racial diversity or ethnic diversity might also be gender or sexual orientation or ability, disability, so on and so forth. That's diversity, but that's different than inclusion. Inclusion is the idea of bringing people who are historically or traditionally excluded into uh, that institution. So inclusion is, for example, in the 1960s when particularly Ivy League universities began admitting women um, and students of color. So Diversity as a rationale or motivation is different than inclusion. Diversity goes further, in a sense, than inclusion, in that you're looking at multiple identities, you're looking at different kinds of backgrounds, whereas inclusion is, simple form of inclusion is just opening up an institution that had historically excluded a certain groups or traditionally, historically ex- excluded certain people. Now, those are different than equity. So equity is sometimes distinguished between equity and equality. So equality would be treating people equally. So there's there are these images that are sometimes found on the internet where you see people behind a fence. And because of their differential height, the fence is, let's say, behind a ball game or a baseball diamond. Because one person is shorter, they can't see, uh, you know, beyond the, uh, above the fence to watch the ball game. Um, uh, and there are problems with those imagery, and so I don't want to overly critique them, but the idea of equity is you go beyond formal treatment or equality of treatment to try and ensure equality of opportunity or reduce the inequitable outcomes of disparate outcomes. So equity isn't, you don't just treat people the same and assume that you're being fair. It looks as a fairness component to it, right? That you also need to make sure that there is at least some, some concern for outcomes. Now, it doesn't mean that you want perfectly equal outcomes, which is a mistake that critics of equity sometimes say, but it does mean that there's some attention to that. And then finally, I, I want to introduce a concept that typically isn't discussed in these contexts, which is belonging. So um, belonging is goes beyond equity and it goes beyond inclusion because it isn't just about opening up spaces or institutions or neighborhoods, or whatever the case may be, to people who have been excluded. And it's not just a concern with outcomes or a quality of opportunity, but it also takes account of how people feel in the space. Um, and so it's it's not just about you know admitting a small number of people or going beyond that to try and be concerned with equity. It's really about the degree to which people not only feel as if they can participate and um, you know, in the context of magic, play or compete, but also that they, or that they feel welcome, but that they feel as if they f- belong as much as anyone else there. 
And so I think belonging is an important term and concept to think about as we get into this conversation, because to some extent, what we're, we're, we're not just trying to create access. We want to make sure that no one feels as if they don't belong simply because they are uh, not a white male, right, of a certain age in a magic tournament. Um, and so to some extent, part of the goal really is a sense of belonging. Okay, that is a lot of definitions. Um, Kevin, any amendments or questions you have about those? Just that all of these concepts exist, maybe to different degrees, in the themes that we're about to discuss, both with respect to things that we have control of as a community and things that we don't necessarily have direct control of, uh, that is mostly on the part of Wizards of the Coast. So we're going to try and call out some of the examples of these things where we find them. We have a loose structure to our conversation in the following segment around three heavy themes that we've alluded to. So the first is Wizards of the Coast, their promotion and support of inclusiveness in their corporate culture and in the game that we play. The second is magic tournaments and issues surrounding what it's like to be in a magic tournament. And the third is the community as a, at large and specifically the eternal community and what our responsibilities and contributions are. Right. Under the first theme, we have some really quality material from members of the magic community with respect to how wizards conducts their business, their design and their internal workings, as well as their output. Yes. And I want to share just a couple of excerpts from these. So on June 3rd, Lawrence Harmon a.k.a. Lawrence Harmon on Twitter, wrote a statement to Wizards of the Coast immediately following a series of tweets that their, that is Magic's, eSports Twitter account made on June 2, highlighting black Magic the Gathering players. I'm not going to read Lawrence's whole statement. We'll have a link to it. But one quick summary that I excerpted is, and I quote, By and large, Wizards of the Coast has ignored the existence of its black Magic player base, and we are keenly aware. The aforementioned gesture was a gross act of tokenism that we not only that that were not only lambasted by black magic players, but were also noticed by the community at large. Keep in mind, this is early June, which is only a week or two removed from the community and as well as the nation becoming aware of the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police. Shortly after Lawrence Harmon's letter on June 8th, Zane Begg, a.k.a. Zbeg on Twitter, also wrote a letter, a second letter titled The Wizards I Know. Begg's a former editor-in-chief of a MTG retailer who has played in Pro Tours, worked for Channel Fireball, and he shared his perspective on the company after years of being surrounded by its employees and part of the culture. And I quote, Wizards of the Coast is a rotten company with a long, unbroken pattern of insidious, racist behavior wrapped in self-congratulatory praise. You can print all the Teferis and Sahelis and Chandras you want, but it doesn't make you racially inclusive when the people profiting off it are all almost exclusively white, and people of color can't get in on it even when they try. And following less than a month later, Zame's letter is one by one Orion Black, aka Dungeon Commander, who wrote about their experience working at Wizards of the Coast. And we'll have a link to their whole statement, but I want to summarize with this quote, they only care about how optics turn into dollars. 
everything involving D&D will continue to farm marginalized people for the looks and never put them in leadership. They won't be put on staff. They will be held at arm's length. Now, these three letters are part of a continuum that goes back to the concepts you just described in detail, Steve. They describe how the culture at Wizards of the Coast um, exploits marginalized people, especially people of color, both from the inside as well as the outward-facing elements like the esports team and their token representation of Black Magic the Gathering players in early June. And it points to just a broad breadth of lack of representation in the company, in the culture, and in the creation of the game. So, What are your thoughts on that? So, are, Well, are the discussion at this point, we're going to focus on what Wizards of the Coast can and should mm-hmm. do. And then we'll get to tournament organizers and the vintage community after that, um, as you outlined at the top. Um, the starting place in my mind, well, let me say one more thing before, one more contextual note. Uh, to the extent that Wizards of the Coast may or may not signal or symbolically express solidarity with Black Lives Matter movements or Hasbro may do the same or or you know make gestures of racial uh, equity or anti-racism without necessarily doing deeper work that is I wouldn't single out Hasbro for that that's a, a widespread pattern in, in among uh, corporations corporate America right which is that mm. And even beyond corporate America, the nonprofits and even academia, which is they they Absolutely talk agree. a good game, yeah, they talk a good game, but what do they actually do? You know, so I don't I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to act as if like you know Wizards of the Coast is like like the most hypocritical corporation <laughs> in America in this regard. Well, no, Probably but that's not the line. message of these letters. No, no, it's not. But I just wanted to say that as context. So the the starting point for me when it comes to um, either anti-racism or inclusion or even belonging and equity is hiring and staff. Uh, you know, you can do all the anti-racism trainings you want, but the starting point has to be to build diversity within your teams at every level. And the reason that is critical, so there's a whole mm-hmm. resource literature on this. There's a book by Scott Page out of the University of Michigan called The Difference, What Difference Does a Difference Make?, and for those of you who may be open but skeptical to this, basically what the research says is that diverse teams perform better, regardless of what the goal is and regardless of what the context is. Because if you have people from diverse, let's say, racial, religious, age backgrounds, you are going to get different perspectives. So diversity really does make a difference. And in a team environment where you're working together, it's important to have different perspectives. Now, of course, there are psychological differences, neurological differences between people, but but I think that the starting point for wizards has to be a drive to promote staff diversity, diversity in their uh, uh, you know narrative teams, diversity in their R and D testing and design teams, diversity in leadership and management, diversity all the way around. And I can't speak to what extent Wizards do, does or is, is making progress on that, but but to the extent that we have these anecdotal uh, but non-trivial uh, reports, right, accounts from people who were interns or worked or contracted in some way with Wizards of the Coast, it suggests that they have not done a good enough job on this front. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the starting point is hiring more diversity. And I, there is an, 
right, it's not just in terms of the design or development teams, as I've noted. There have been concerted efforts to represent different cultures and different characters of racial, different diverse and racial, ethnic, religious backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. And there have been criticisms in the last couple of years of those efforts. Mm-hmm. Kevin, you're probably more familiar with some of those critiques than I have, but I think it goes back to Kaladesh and, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, some of those examples. And those mistakes could have been, if not entirely avoided, somewhat mitigated had they had more diverse staff, you know, speaking up and, and present in positions of power to be able to, uh, to speak up and, and raise those questions and concerns, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Good, good points. And to your specific points, the, the letter by Orion in particular highlights some of the distinctions you were making earlier about, especially about belonging. It is, and I would agree with you, incumbent upon any organization of this size and nature to start with hiring and bringing people, uh, a diversity of people in to their organization to get those perspectives, but it's incumbent upon them to listen, to promote yeah. that sense of belonging and to make sure that not, once those people are in the door, they are listened to, they're engaged, they're involved, and they're, they're trusted to be part of those organizations. And I think Orion's letter in particular speaks to uh, a, a gap in their experience in that particular arena. And yeah, w- you know, the study Sorry, that you referred to and all the related studies uh, just highlight the ways in which this is not only the right thing to do, but also this would benefit the game as a whole because magic is not exclusive among other industries and many, many other uh, practices and uh, well, industries is the right word, I would guess, but products whereby a diverse set of perspectives improves the quality of the outcome as well, both for the product by and by extension, us as the customers, but also for those experienced in the company. Those, you know, the, yeah. the act of making the product should be an act of inclusiveness and diversity and everyone should benefit thereof. And there's so much that goes into making the product, right? It's not just about designing mechanics and, and testing for power balance and building archetypes in a metagame. It's, mm-hmm. it's also about building themes, building characters, world building, narrative, storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, everything. That has to yeah. reflect, it has to be diverse and inclusive. If you don't do that, then what, you know, it's going to reflect the people who make the, who, who do all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and part of what is, I think critical here, it, let me just say this because this is, I imagine some of our listeners have probably wondered this. Well, you know, look, to what extent does magic as a game, you know, is like a, an esport or a card game, you know, to what extent does that, does it have a certain kind of appeal or lack of appeal among certain, let's say, members of certain identity groups? Mm-hmm. And I would say that that looks at it backwards. That the, the, the way in which you know, the, the design, the, the output of the design of the game is going to have different kinds of appeal de- depending upon its features. You know, one of the things that came up over and over again in our limited edition review for our big 100th episode is that the art, mm-hmm. the world out of Alpha was part of the appeal. And part of that design, you could say, well, you know, the fantasy medieval appeal appeals more towards white males, you know, mm-hmm. I would say that's tautological. I would say that the extent to which you have certain kinds of representation in the cards is going to shape whether there is a sense of inclusivity or belonging, you know, or what or not. Mm-hmm. That that you know, games like chess and magic may have predominant male uh, 
player base. But that is not natural. And, you know, it's not like, you know, there are, there's disagreements on this, but there are certain studies that, you know, there's certain attempts to try and figure out whether, for example, uh, you know, infants or toddler boys are more attracted to, you know, uh, you know, to, uh, um, fire trucks versus, you know, dolls or something like that. And the, 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 the research is quite honestly mixed on that. So I don't want to assert one way or the other. But I think something as complicated and engaging is, is gaming. We cannot assume that there's going to be an inherent gender orientation preference for that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think the evidence is to the contrary mm-hmm. overwhelm, you know, overall that if you go and look on, you know, ro- Twitch and look at who's streaming Roblox or, you know, Zelda games. It's the, gen- it's, it's not clear. And then in terms of race or ethnicity or cultural religion, Magic, since it's almost its very inception, has been a global game. Mm-hmm. You know, all, so, you know, there is no inherent, <laughs> you know, racial or ethnic preference, I think, among Magic players. That, in, in, If you were going to try and persuade me of that, you would need a mountain of empirical evidence. <laughs> so I think the, the <laughs> default assumption should be that um, any such preferences we see are byproducts of cultural uh, biases, invisible ones that may that exist in magic that have existed over years, and so we need to do not work to root them out per se, but root work to expand representation, world building, storytelling, and so on in ways that are much more inclusive. One more thing, mm-hmm. you know, look, magic will never be perfectly equitable in every respect. There are always going to be, um, you know, intellectual advantages. There's going to always be uh, uh, monetary and financial advantages, you know, um, that simply, you know, frankly, that people who are extremely low income will probably not be able to have uh, an equal footing in this game, um, you know, and that is that is whether that's something that needs to be addressed or not is a separate conversation, but. Um, and, and certainly people who put more work in and who have the privilege of having time to put more work in are going to be advantaged in the game just as they are in any competitive game, chess, you know, video games, whatever the case may be. But that doesn't mean all of those advantages to some extent may, may not be rootoutable, but that doesn't mean that those that are addressable and based on, you know, identity characteristics uh, shouldn't be addressed and couldn't be addressed more than they already are. Yes. So that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would agree with you. It, we may not be able to resolve all issues in that regard, but resolving all issues is the wrong framing for a topic right. like this, right? The, the, the right framing is to take steps to eradicate those kind of issues. And I do agree that elitism and economic factors are also elements on this spectrum that I want Wizards of the Coast to be cognizant of. Now, unfortunately, that is almost directly at odds with their position as a company and a, a for-profit company, and so that's one of the most insidious things, uh, you know, in our culture is capitalism, where it's a lot of scope for this show. But I would agree that those considerations are also valid considerations on this spectrum of things to to bring in in terms of representation in the production of the product. And I mean, Magic is by definition a collectible card game, the first collectible card game. So it's not going to be as accessible in terms of financial participation, mm-hmm. right? As say chess or any number of other games where there's a single object or thing that you can purchase into, <laughs> yeah. right? And participate. 
but so, but there's a little um, bit of an epistemological argument with respect to whether or not ma- you know how do you separate magic as the product from magic the concept right it is possible to sure. play magic without owning yes. magic which is well, something i've long been in favor of which brings up issues <laughs> of economics and proxies well, if, and all manner of things right the reserve list is all those yeah. things come into yes. play um but that's but i just wanted to point out that it's not you know even beyond whether <laughs> you know the capitalism or or whether uh, Hasbro is a for-profit company, there is more inherent in magic than that that creates a barrier, yes. which is it, it, inherent to magic as a collectible card game. And I'm not, I am not saying that the effort to promote inclusion on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender, uh, so on, disability, ability, uh, I, I'm not saying that those things need, you know, that that, that is is a good that we should pursue without with while recognizing that we will never probably be able to eradicate all forms of inequity mm-hmm. that exist within magic and nor should we necessarily and maybe perhaps yeah. you and I may agree I may want to before we move on to our, on that but that's the point I wanted to make well I want to cite one other thing before we move on to our specific recommendations and that is Rich Shea's article entitled Hasbro's Crusade Against Representation and I point this out just to bolster the point that it's not just the design of the game but also the administration of it and the associated ownership of the thing that necessitates diversity because and i quote from rich's article when hasbro banned jihad and called the card explicitly racist they played into the unfortunately common trope of assuming that anyone of middle eastern background is muslim islam is not a race and middle eastern is not a religion conflating them inevitably erases middle eastern christians as well as many muslims who are not middle eastern and that's just one part of rich's examination of the definitely poor way that wizards handled their initial bannings from this year and that category of cards because the initial announcement lumped them all under uh, racism which as he elaborates further in his article is not an appropriate framing and it definitely results in cultural erasure when applied to something like jihad. Well, I I do not agree with everything that Rich said. And, and in fact, before Rich published his article in September, he had consulted me and, and asked me for feedback. Mm-hmm. And I, without you know being divulging everything that we we discuss, I will say a couple of things. The first thing I I I agree. the day that Wizards made this announcement, I did say that they were conflating race and religion. Mm-hmm. I think that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um. And they subsequently, as you pointed out, edited the statement to encompass what they said cultural offensive things. Mm-hmm. The the two things that I, I said to Rich is I said without again without getting the specifics is I said that I did not think that his his letter would accomplish his objective, and his objective was to reverse at least some of these bannings. I didn't think it was mm-hmm. designed to do that. Um, the second thing, you know, having been with with Rich through the Time Vault Wars, you know, <laughs> how do you win and how do you, you know. The second thing I said is that I uh, I disagreed with his statement that those bannings themselves constituted racism. Uh, that's the thing I disagree with him most strongly about, is that he says that, that by banning these, that they are actually being racist in of themselves. I, I think that's the wrong term, because it doesn't fit into the, the, the definitions I gave at the top of, of either being motivated by discriminatory intent or racial group-based animus on the basis of a racial group, or the belief in the superiority and inferiority of a particular race or as an expression of nor is it an expression of institutional or systemic racism 
I do think, though, that um, a couple things. One is that if they wanted to go ahead and ban all these cards, they should... Look, this is an enormous endeavor. You're articulating a principle, and then you're banning eight cards out of what? twenty? How many car- magic cards even exist anymore? 25,000? North Something of like that? that. 30, more, than, more than 25,000 now. <laughs> yeah. You, you've got to be... That's a huge effort, and it's unclear what criteria they use or how they applied those criteria. In fact, they didn't even provide an explanation for these specific bannings, and thereby open themselves up to all sorts of criticism. Mm-hmm. Not on the principle, but on the application of the principle. Mm-hmm. And and also, furthermore, they, it feeds the perception that this is, again, a big corporate gesture, symbolic gesture that got the Washington Post, the New York Times, and so on and so forth to to quote them and praise them and so on, right? To To note what they had done in the media without necessarily addressing anything core to the magic experience. That is to say... It's the it's the equivalent in systemic racism of taking down a statue of Ulysses S. Grant, right? It's going to do practically nothing to to address uh, uh, systemic racism, and I think that that's a fair to some extent that's a fair critique. Well, here's what I yeah, and I want to tie go. my citing of the thing specifically to the actionable elements therein because that's that's the primary goal here. Sure, sure. Do you want to say something specific to that? What, well, what I, do you think? I just, I just want to allow for us to bridge from what you're getting at and what, what part of Rich's point was. Let, let me just quote Rich real quick. Instead of banning Jihad and other cards, work with the community to craft a respectful and informative statement to caption the cards' images in the official Magic database. Instead of trying to erase cards and history and representation, use the opportunity to educate and improve for the future. That is one recommendation specifically from Rich, but I think it's emblematic of the broader issue, which is that Wizards did not engage members of yes. the represented communities, and that's where the lack of diversity inside of their company rears its head. Right. So it, th- that goes back to the point I said, which is what's the underlying principle, then how do you apply that principle? And if you're applying the principle without engaging those communities or without diverse representation on your teams, then there's a good chance that your attempt to implement the principle is going to have some significant flaw or blind spot. Yes. Um, I think I think those are all fair points. I disagree, again, I, I disagree with Rich's comment that these decisions are themselves racist. Yeah. In fact, I think to some, <laughs> some extent, to some extent he's replicating the error because, again, if jihad was not banned on the basis of race, but on cultural insensitivity, then calling it racist doesn't actually make it racist. It's just a categorization error, <laughs> right? That, which is the same thing he's he's criticizing them for. Um, a category error is not racism. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. Um, but, but that's not what we're getting uh, at. No, that's not what we're getting at. I, I do think they, again, could have done a lot better explaining the... Um, the bases for these, and there were some people who tried to explain the bases for these, and I wonder, you know, to what extent is this actually, are these racism, depictions of racism, or cultural insensitivity? Some of them, you could certainly make that argument, but the, the problem is, without f- fuller articulation or engagement, you're just as inclined not to, to ban something on a mistaken premise as you are to miss something that's actually more egregious, mm-hmm. right? It's not clear why they banned one of these cards and not another that may have just been worse. So, and, and where does this principle end? And how far do you take it? Is are really 
open questions. I, I tend to think that uh, that, so, that at least one of these cases is clearly justified in terms of banning. The rest, I'm not so sure about. And I think that it, that without a clearly defined principle and a set of criteria for applying it, perhaps we do have a clearly defined principle, although I would say that's not clearly defined because by expanding it to culturally offensive, that is incredibly open, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that it's it's unclear what it means for the future in terms of banning or restriction. But as you say, that's not our focus here. Our, <laughs> our, our, our focus here is about what should wizards do. And so the second thing I would say beyond staffing diverse staffing and diverse hiring and diverse promotion and management and also not just hiring but making sure that the people within your organization have say have voice and are respected and heard mm-hmm. is is the is engagement community engagement specifically with different you know diverse communities within the magic community and i think they all i think they clearly failed I, on that I want and to. They, they should go ahead yeah I- exactly to the points you're making, I want to quote Lawrence Harmon's letter here because he has a very succinct, actionable list here. Now, remember, this is specifically in the context of the esports tweets highlighting black players, but it speaks to the broader issues. And Lawrence says, so how can we do better? Stop treating black players like second-class citizens. Stop pandering to black people. Stop putting a spotlight on the black player base only when social pressure forces you to do so. Stop spouting half-assed platitudes and engaging in worthless slacktivism. Stop using the promotion of women in LGBTQ plus communities as an excuse to ignore Magic's other minority groups. He goes on, start promoting black content creators. Start promoting more black players who are excelling in the competitive sphere. Start hiring more black people in public-facing positions and start reaching out to the black player base and asking how you can assist. I think those last two are. Those four. Those last two are four action good. items are. Yeah, I think the last four action items are very good. I don't necessarily uh, understand, uh, you know, agree or understand exactly the premise behind every one of the stops, um, because I just don't have enough. Yeah, can, you know, see, see Lawrence's broader letter, which is a, quite, a nice long letter. See, see his longer work for for more I, reference. There. I did read. I did read. I did read it when it came out. Yeah. But um, you know, I'm not saying those things didn't happen. To be clear, I'm just saying I. You know, can't attest to each and every one of those. I think that this list of things to do is a great list, though. Mm-hmm. And I think we could extend it beyond that, right? We could extend it to... I think these are good, actionable items that could be extended more generally as well. But I think starting with black content yes. creators, black players, and hiring black people in public-facing positions and community engagement are all excellent starting points. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, we wanted to elaborate then on some of the recommendations from this source material on with a few additional ones. How did you want to progress with that? Well, Kevin, I think one of the things that um, that we you know came up even in our alpha review is, and so let's look beyond race, religion, ethnicity, and also talk about ableism and how it shows up in magic. Now, um, you know, you pointed out that that uh, Chaos Orb and Falling Star are you know, irretrievably, irrede- irredeemably, potentially ableist cards. And I think, you know, that we should, we should, mm-hmm. Wizards of the Coast should just adopt a policy of not making more cards like that, even in joke sets, like the unsets. Yeah, completely agree. The most recent example of that is Slaying Mantis from, I forget what the most recent one is called, Unhinged. Uh, the um, glued Unhinged. I can't remember the, the, the third one. But anyway, Slaying Mantis is a continuation of the Chaos Orb Falling Star design space, and it just needs to be ended. 
we we need to it, <laughs> we need to just put a moratorium on that. It's not appropriate for the game of the community. It, and also the and it's not just the 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 flipping of cards or dropping of cards, but also the ones where you have to touch a card at a certain speed, that's right. which also are also in the unsets. Yeah, any of the things to no, the, do with with physical ability and physical actions need to be excised. Right. I mean, that's just that's just a clear a clear problem. Um mm-hmm. anything else you want to mention in terms of what wizards should do? I think we've given them a long list, a, a good list. <laughs> Not well, terribly we've long. Talked but about a good list. The, 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 yeah, we've talked about design, we've talked about their, their you know, their corporate hiring practices. When it comes to world building, I mean, Lawrence's letter touches on it a fair bit, but I just want to reiterate that we, they need to continue to include and promote both main and minor characters with underrepresented traits and backgrounds. Uh, and I think that they have started down this road. There has definitely been a stronger commitment to diversity and character representation with respect to gender and race. And I think that that just needs to be continue to elaborate upon that uh, for other traits and other demographics as well. Let's move on to the next theme then. And the next theme is magic tournaments and their surrounding issues. This area has mostly to do with tournament organizers, uh, but the, the primary metric we have here is the experience that players have attending tournaments. Now, I know not many of us are attending in-person tournaments anymore, but I'm picturing things like GPs and picturing things like Eternal Weekend, but this extends all the way down to your local gaming store. Because yes. like it or not, the way that most, the vast majority of Magic players interact with other Magic players is, uh, in a tournament setting, is at a lo- local gaming store. I'm not, LGS. Yeah, I'm not talking about at your home or inviting people to your webcams, but <laughs> some of these things extend to those environments as well. But I'm really talking about what do you as a tournament organizer or someone who supports a local tournament, maybe you're a judge, that kind of thing, how do you craft environments where you bring players in and make those environments inclusive, make people feel like they belong? And yes. this takes a There's number of different There's so much forms. here. Yeah. yeah. Um, where would you like to start, Kevin? Well, I'd like to start with a couple of tweets that I gathered in preparation for this episode, and they are representative of, of numerous issues. One from... A person I follow named Visa, aka Visa MTG, and she says, in response to a, a thread of things. But the summary is this: the amount of times a publicly available pairing or standing list has compromised my privacy and/or safety is too high. But I don't have any good recommendations to fix it. What she's referring to here is examples, and she had a, a quote tweet inside of that message which says, "Hey, I've seen you around tournaments, and I want to get to know you." This is a tricky issue that involves the safety and privacy of players. And it is especially relevant to women, of course, but it applies to everyone. And the notion is simply that pairings, the way they've been done, especially in large events, are inherently uh, uh, given to exposing a person, an individual's privacy. They facilitate stalking is what you're trying to say. Yeah, to, to everyone in the tournament. And it's summarized, I think, also very well by Chase, Heart of Fire, a.k.a. Mana Curves on Twitter, who says, please don't seek out my private Facebook if I don't know you. I appreciate all the kind messages, but it's a bit invasive. There's no doubt that a person's safety and privacy can and has been repeatedly compromised by the act of simply posting a laundry list of names on a tournament board. It's not necessary. There are better systems at play. And one of our recommendations, which we're going to get to, is for tournament organizers to find ways to protect players' privacy, even in a setting 
such as a magic tournament where everyone is I, ostensibly laundering around the same room together. Right. I want to be clear on what we mean by privacy here, because we're not talking... I mean, when you are in a magic tournament that is ostensibly a quasi-public setting, even if it is a quote-unquote private event, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you are in in a public setting. What we are talking about is something more than just, you know, someone being able to see you in a room. Yeah. Go ahead. Explain. explain. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's the combination of being in person with someone, but also having your personal information projected out for the whole world to see, right? You and also your per- where you are in that space constantly known over the course of a day. Yes, that's identified. That's right. That's right. Unfortunately, the nature of magic tournaments tends to combine all those factors into one. Uh, combined piece of information and it doesn't need to be that way if you anonymize players for example uh, removing name from the equation that goes a long way toward making it so that a a person cannot be tied to their name just based on all the available information so if everyone was given a number at the beginning of an event for example then you could Mm -hmm. now you might have problems with people forgetting their number and so on and so forth i don't have a good fix for this because an alternative is just to have message directly sent to your phone, mm-hmm. or maybe the option for that of where your st- your standings are. What happens if you lose your phone? Yeah, um, I-, I think I think that there are, there are ways to to do that where you could have someone opt in to not have the public standings or public uh, pairings posted and have it go to you directly to your phone. Mm-hmm. But that would be logistically difficult or an additional layer for tos. But it's something that we should at least consider yeah. and they should explore. Wizards is exploring this, I know, with their companion app. And they are taking steps towards uh, using technology to solve things in, in most of the ways you've described, both by anonymizing people's identity on lists but no, and also making the communication a little more private. I believe that there are a little bit more analog solutions at the local level, too. You can... Um, for example, have a, a, a set of laminated cards with uh, player numbers on them, and you just hand out a card at the start of a tournament. This only works up to a certain size, yeah. of course, but many local tournaments are, you know, 16, 20 players. If you just hand out a card from 1 to 20 for each person, say this is your number for this event, bring it back when you're done, then you can post standings by number that way, something like that. Temporary I, analog I love, solutions work up to a point. Yeah. I also love the I, the, I think that's a good one. I also love the idea of, of the messaging option because then you know, you know when the tournament's about, the round's about to start. So <laughs> that's if true. you're distracted, get a nice little reminder there. <laughs> the messaging has um, other benefits as well. But there's much more that we, so let's step back. I mean, these are, these are important issues, but they're not, I think, the major ones, the, the largest in the tournament or for the or, tournament organizers and tournament orga- organizer space. Mm-hmm. I think the, pr- the primary thing that we have to, recommend for tournament organizers is to facilitate an environment that is uh, lacking in offensive behaviors and offensive conduct that tries to address mm-hmm. that. And so there are already, for example, floor rules and sportsman's, uh, sportsmanship conduct rules and so on that govern some of this stuff, but I think it should be reasonably extended to uh, behavior that is, you know, abusive, not in the sense of, you know, because you can already get DQ'd for, you know, chewing your, you know, cursing out an opponent and for unsportsmanlike conduct. I'm talking about for things that are specifically using racial epithets and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And want, I think... Yeah, we want our tournament organizers and any tournament staff and any associated tournament materials and communications to be reflective of the kind of inclusiveness that we want in our community. 
Yes. And and again, this isn't just about activity. this isn't about banning people or kicking people out of spaces. What it is is about what is the aspiration that we want? How do we create a, not only an inclusive space but a, se- a sense of greater belonging? And to do that isn't it isn't just enough to say what we don't want. It is important to try and articulate what we what we stand for. And so I think we want I would like to see more tournament organizers articulate principles of inclusivity. Uh, in terms of the space that they are creating and holding. Yeah. Posted guidelines on, on a website, posted as part of a tournament announcement. This is the kind yes, of environment. and in their space. Yes, this is in t- the kind of environment we're trying to pre- promote. We promote these values. We do not allow these actions or these activities. Or- but the emphasis, I think, shouldn't shouldn't be on penalizing. But it, it, you know, That should be part of mm-hmm. it. But the emphasis should be on you know a positive, inclusive environment. Yes. The ways in which a tournament organizer can do this are, are many and varied, but most LGS I know of have their own website, for example. You can post your values there. Tournament announcements could come with links to summaries of and you know maybe links out to more comprehensive versions of the, the community standards for and the goals for that. And a lot of local groups that I'm part of also have you know, community groups on Facebook, that kind of thing, where you can have conversations and ongoing discussions about Hey, this is what our shop, this is what our tournaments, this is what our community is trying to build toward. And if you have any questions about those things, you can ask them in these groups or you can message the TOs privately. All of those things I think should be leveraged when you're trying to build a community and to make those part of your primary outward facing messaging. Um, I don't know exactly what the floor rules are currently, but um, I assume that, th- that we should also discourage people from, you know, using basically apply the basic the hostile work environment, you know, principles to a mm-hmm. magic tournament. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want, you know, people walking around with Playboy playmat play playmates on their playmats. <laughs> yes. Right? Things like things like that. And there are, are probably, there is some you know, umbrella language in the floor rules for that kind of thing. I just want to emphasize though, because I can hear or imagine people saying, Oh, you're just trying to create like a safe space and you know, um, you know, we're all adults, blah, blah, blah. What I would just say is this isn't, again, this is just about, uh, first of all, magic tournaments are, it's a privilege to be able to compete. It's not a right, right? These are, it's a private company and tournament organizers are private. Tournament organizers are private entities. You don't have an automatic right to compete in a tournament, um, especially in a local game store where a, a, a store owner or a proprietor can determine who can, can come in and out. Um, as long as they're not discriminating on some, you know, uh, predefined basis that's protected by law. Um, I would say, so I would say that we actually do have the authority and right to try and curate a space that is consistent with the principles that we hope to espouse, that we not only espouse, but we hope to see embodied in the, ter- in the magic experience. So uh, this isn't about creating a quote-unquote safe space. There's still going to be competition. There's still going to be disappointment. There's still going to be, you know, um, hard feelings. But what it is is making sure that no one feels excluded on grounds that they shouldn't. Yeah. And I would extend that to say that if anyone feels like they're being told they can't do something that is unreasonable, there's a very good chance, and I'm speaking to people like me right now, there's a very good chance that if you feel that way, it's because something that shouldn't have been has gone on too long. There's a good chance that if you feel like you're being curtailed unreasonably, 
by these recommendations that you might be part of a community that allows for uh, certain language, certain certain actions, certain jokes, attitudes. perhaps certain attitudes. Yes, uh, norms, th- behaviors that has gone unmoderated for too long, and I would ask you to consider to seriously examine that in yourself and in your your communities, because I know uh, I've been party to that. Well, a lot and of I magic think players that it is still it is still common. A lot of magic players are young white men, mm-hmm. white you know, and boys. And there are a lot of things that happen. I mean, look, in the New York Times just this past weekend, there was an article about a Virginia high school and a, and a young white girl who made a comment, used the N-word, on, uh, and uh, another student found the video and, you know, uh, pu- publicly posted it. And, uh, you know, what should have happened? How was this handled? Blah, blah, blah. The, the fact of the matter is that, you know, there's a lot of obnoxious behavior in, in among young people. And... I think tournament organizers have not only uh, the right, but I think also the additional responsibility to try and do their part to curate a space that's healthier, better, more inclusive than maybe is found in a high school hallway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and and you know, it doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but it does mean that they play a significant role in all the ways that we talked about in terms of you know reducing yeah. hostile hostile you know. The, equivalent to a hostile environment, you know, taking out things or prohibiting things that, that make people feel uncomfortable on a reasonable basis, right? Um, not be, not because of your preference in music, but because of <laughs> symbols or images or gestures or things. And there are things that can't be clearly articulated, but are felt, right? If, if someone is kind of constantly in your space and harassing you and making comments, cumulatively, that can feel very inappropriate and should be addressed mm-hmm. right um and, yes and i would point out too that it, it's not reasonable for us to expect uh, all tournament organizers to be experts in all of these things i hope that it's clear from part of our, our prior section of this talking about what wizards can do diversity of perspectives in this arena applies directly as well if you are unsure about a thing ask someone else as right. if just because you organize a magic tournament and, or run a local gaming store doesn't mean you're supposed to be immediately an expert on all these topics. And part Seek of part of doing that is others. right, both proactively and also create an open door policy. So, you know, to communicate as mm-hmm. part of your principles that if someone feels uncomfortable, that you know, allow a private mechanism for for that to be communicated, and yes, a, and a mechanism for the to be addressed. And all of the comments that we have with respect to Wizards of the Coast and their hiring practices and their outreach to communities applies to local gaming stores and tournament organizers in principle as well. If you look around all the employees of your store and all of the perhaps judging staff for your tournaments, that kind of thing, and they're all people that look exactly like you, that all look the same perhaps, that's a red flag. You should seek diversity of input and of participation and especially of employment if, if you're talking about a business here for all the same reasons that wizards should all right anything else on the to front steve no i think we i think we handled it i think though we just you know there's a lot there um tournament organizers, part of it is shaping the environment Go ahead. yeah tournament organizers and local gaming stores are the bridge between the first and last themes we've got here they're a bridge between wizards as a company who produces the game and the community who plays the game, right? 
they have a, a, a they have a toe in both of those pools because most of the time TOs are companies. Most of the time they are for-profit organizations, but they're frequently comprised of members of the community, right? Magic judges, for example, or just players of the game who happen to own gaming stores or happen to organize tournaments. So you've got to feel the, you've got to feel the responsibility, so to speak, as members of both of those communities and, uh, and sculpt the world in a way that promotes the values that we want to promote in our community. And that brings us to our responsibilities as members of the community. I want to reiterate something I said at the top of this segment, which is right now I'm speaking to people like me. This is me speaking for the portion of the magic community of admittedly a large one, perhaps the largest one, cis het white men here, right? This is what can we do to make the community better? The, I think we, first of all, I just I want to also put out there that vintage players in particular and eternal players are probably among the most privileged in the, in the magic community. So we, we should also recognize that and, yes. and therefore, you know, with that privilege comes a, a little additional dose of responsibility, I would say. Um, but I think within our community, there are things that we can and should do again. So we should ho- hold ourselves to the highest standard with respect to these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are different ways that we can do that. I think one is, uh, you know, espouse the principles that we called for, for, for TOs, which is, um, you know, articulate a goal of inclusion and belonging. Number one. Number, you know, or one A, one B is, um, engage communities and people who are members of communities outside of our own identity group, um, on how we can do better and what we're doing now where we're falling short, blind spots. Uh, one C is, mm-hmm. um, not just, you know, uh, combat racism and sexism and so on where they arise, but model and demonstrate and articulate what are the principles that we hope for and not be shy about that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, when something happens, we should be ready not to condemn someone who, who makes a mistake, but to correct and, and, uh, acknowledge the mistake and then figure out how to do better. Yeah, um, I think that's an important one. Too often, too many things have lingered for too long in our community and this goes for basically any human community, but that's beyond the scope of this show. Too often, too many things exist for too long because they go unacknowledged. It is difficult. Right. So many people are adverse to confrontation. So many people don't want to um, don't want to call their friends out. Basically, I want to point out that there are you have many mechanisms to do these kind of things in a way that sidesteps some of the things you might be concerned about initially, but still addresses some of the root causes. For example. It's perfectly acceptable, in my opinion, to talk to someone privately about a thing that has happened in a public space. If you're not comfortable calling it out right then and there, it's still imminently valuable to speak to them after the fact and say, Absolutely. Hey, this thing that happened this thing that happened today, I'd I'd like to talk about that because that made me feel like that's not representative of our community. I'd I'd like to I'd like it if that didn't happen in our community. It can be as simple as that. It can be bigger than that. There's nothing wrong with confronting someone in real time about a thing, and it has a lot of value. But if you're not comfortable or able or knowledgeable of how to do that, it's totally acceptable to do it in so, private. Exactly. That's part, partly what I was... You know, there's a good friend of ours, Kevin, who used to, and I'm sure I've said this in the... I know I've said this in the past, but who used to say frequently 
that's gay, right? In the pejorative sense. And mm-hmm. we just need to, uh, you know, it's not that we're going to put our call out and put our, our friend on blast, but we will, if that would happen at the appropriate time, uh, depending on what that might be in the moment, it might be afterwards. Yeah. You know, say, look, that's not how we should be speaking. Mm-hmm. That doesn't that doesn't uphold the values that we want to promote in our community. And I can say with confidence that I'm guilty of that in my youth. And it went on for too long for me personally because I wasn't challenged about it for a variety of reasons. Uh, no one pulled me aside and said, "Hey, it would be better if you didn't say that." Here's why, or this this does not, you know, uphold the community that we want to build toward. And it would have had a profound impact on me, I think, if if even one person had said that to me 10, 20 years ago. Um, and I, I kind of, in hindsight, really, really wish that someone had. And there are many, many examples of that, large and small, right? It's not all just things that would make the news, but there are small things that contribute to the whole. Right. And I think we owe it to ourselves to bring those things to our attention because not everything is out of malice, right? Some things are out of ignorance. And we can address them all in a similar fashion. And there, there are a lot of ways in which we're all learning uh, day in and day out about new areas. So, for example, um, I've learned a lot in the last few years about my understanding and growth and understanding of people who are transgender, for example, and how important it or is. Non-binary. To, yeah, or non-binary. Yeah, or non-binary. How, just how important it is to respect and understand someone's uh, gender identity. It can be as simple as their name. You might know a person, many of us probably know a person whose name has changed over the years. Well, that's important to them. It's very important to them. And it's important to have respect yes. for that and to, and to use their name, their chosen name. And that the there's same, so little cost to, to doing that, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, just respect how a person wishes to be identified <laughs> and, and, and their identity. And this goes back, I, I wish I had thought of this a minute ago, but this goes back to the tournament organizers, right? You have a very simple and obvious way to respect someone's name by not using their dead name, even though you might have it on a list uh, somewhere in your tournament software. If someone comes to you and says, that's not my name anymore, it's important to respect that. And it's a valuable part of building the community and making that person feel welcomed. Yeah. And this isn't about political correctness. This is not about uh, anything political. This is just about courtesy and respect. I want to cite, uh, you know, by way of other um, reference points that are outside of my identity, I want to cite a panel that I watched on YouTube. The title is Race, Sexuality, Gender, Disability, How to Be a Better Ally. It was put on by the folks at uh, Kind of Funny Games. We'll have a link in the show notes. But a member of that panel named Shauna Bryant, who's a senior producer at Crystal Dynamics, she goes by Mushroom Queendom on Twitter, which is a great handle. But as part of one of her larger points, I want to excerpt just this one statement. One of the most common mistakes they make, and she's referring to allies here, is going into a space and taking up all the air in that space. It's one of the things that I'm personally striving to avoid and that I would encourage all levels of the individuals and, and groups that we're talking to and about here, and that is to take that to heart. If you want to be an ally to any particular person or group of people, don't go in there and take up all the air in that space. To Shauna's point, bring those people in. It's not about it's not just about you and how you can do better. It's about making those people feel engaged and valued and listened to. And if you can do that, you'll be successful at integrating those people into your community and into whatever it is you're trying to build. I'd like to summarize this segment, Steve, by just saying that 
you can start small on these issues. You know, we've listed a number of recommendations, both big and small, from an organizational down to the individual. If you find yourself challenged or interested or faced with any one of these things, just reach out to someone, right? That diversity goes at, at almost every scale. It, it doesn't even have to be someone who doesn't look like you to start with, but a diversity of perspectives to start with. But you can ask someone, yeah. big or small, um, what they think about a thing, and that's the beginning of a step. And, and belonging, the difference between belonging and these other forms of inclusion is that belonging has an affective component, which means that it's not just enough to be present in the space. It's about whether people feel as if they belong. And part of that is feeling as if they have a say and can fully participate. Um, it doesn't mean, again, that there's going to be perfect equity in every respect for magic. Magic has, you know, um, there are people who are intellectually uh, advantage, cognitively advantage, uh, and, you know, and there are different kinds of advantages. Some atypical neurologies are actually advantages in magic. Um, but the point is that we can all do better. The question to think about, I think, is does this behavior advance a sense of belonging, advance belonging or not? If it doesn't, then we should probably try and find those conduct that does, right? And I think we can all do all do better, myself included, in, in that. And part of it isn't just about curbing bad behaviors. It's about what could we do that we're not doing. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And I'm personally committed to that for myself as well in trying to apply it to our community and all the other communities I belong to. Well, thank thanks, you for... Uh, thanks for listening on that front. Yes. Go ahead. I appreciate that. Well, this is, I think, one of the biggest stories of the year, and it certainly has intersected with magic in an interesting and I think hopefully productive way. Um, so it will be something that we'll turn back to at the very end as we evaluate the biggest storylines of the year. So to continue on with our year in review, we're going to have a little bit of a review about how the format changed over the course of the year. Now, what we're talking about here is the <laughs> the thing that we touched on in our past episodes about um, the definition of format change being new sets, banner-restricted updates, or in the case of 2020, rules changes that, uh, that affect card legality and function. So let's review. Just spoken about, <clears throat> just focusing on the format changes throughout the year. So right at the beginning of the year, we had a banner restricted update on, well, it's actually at the end of last year in November in 2019. But the way we came into this year was what Steve calls the trifecta format. <laughs> that is outcome, dredge, and bug leading the metagame. And the first literal change during 2020 of format legality was January 25, the introduction of Theros Beyond Death. What a doozy Reminder, episode. So Theros brought us Soul Guide Lantern, Thassa's Oracle, Underworld Breach, just incredibly great Huge. cards. And we're going to talk about their greatness a little bit more later. But then next comes Ikoria, Lair of Behemoths, as well as the Associated Commander 2020. Of note, these the official street date for these sets is in May. But in practice, and because of delays due to COVID, they were released on Magic Online and subsequently important for Vintage starting in April. April 16 to be exact. To be exact. 
And of course, Ikoria brought us the companions, Luris, Lutri, Zerda, and all the associated commotion with the companions. More on that in just a minute. So the next major change was, of course, the banning of Luris in May. And if you recall, because of the delays, <laughs> Luris was actually banned in Vintage before it was released in paper, which is a noteworthy and, and unprecedented thing. But then in June, we got the associated rules change for Companions. So April, Ikoria comes out. All the Companions are playable online. Early May, <laughs> Luris is banned. A week later, the cards are actually available in print in May. And then in June, the <laughs> they companion were rules change the happens. Print. <laughs> yeah. So that was June. And then come July, we get Core 2021 as well as Jumpstart. And then things are relatively calm until September when we got did you, Zendikar Rising. Did you play with Jumpstart, by the way, Kevin? Did you ever get packs? I got a few packs yeah, locally with Jumpstart. Nothing of note in them, so... I, I have played some of the new cards in Commander, and that's it. I just wanted to say, I didn't think Jumpstart was very basic. It was pretty. It got some pretty complicated games. I did not. I did not <laughs> view that. It did not seem like Portal. Let me put it that way. <laughs> that's absolutely true. It is not Portal. Much more complex than Portal. Okay, so in September we got Zendikar Rising, as well as Secret Lair: The Walking Dead, which didn't make much of a splash, but is noteworthy in terms of legality. And then in November, we get Commander Legends. So a mixture this year of sets and bannings and rules changes formed the structure of the legality in the format. So to recap, first big change of the year is Theros Beyond Death with mm-hmm. three big printings, then Ikoria with Companion, then the Ban and Restricted change, and then Companion Rule change, then Core 21, Jumpstart, Zendikar Rising, and Secret Lair Walking Dead in the Commander Legends. Kevin... There have been you so many small secret layer sets. I This list, though, just reflects those that introduce new vintage legal cards. So, Yeah, th- that this is, year, that's why uh, yeah, The Walking Dead is the only one on this list, because it's the only one that introduced new cards. This year introduced, it seemed like, more specialty sets than I've ever seen before. That is I, correct. I happened, <laughs> I happened to be watching um, the professor's video, uh, I don't... I've seen probably like three or four of his videos ever, but I saw a video on Twitter today where he complained that The Walking Dead, because we're not going to talk about this, so I'll just say, yeah, The Walking Dead secret layer he thought was the worst thing that happened to Magic in 2020. <laughs> I'm serious. He had a number one on his list as the worst thing. Yeah. yeah. It um, has associated uh, many problems, and uh, I agree it's worth being on that list. He he His main critique, as I recall, was that it introduced cards that were both extremely hard to get and uh, for a limited period of time, but in Eternal, of course, are basically legal forever, but also he felt was a money grab and brand bending in that it intersected with a very different and weird brand vis-a-vis Magic. Um, I yes, would say, all though, those that things are true. If, if they had printed a Loris-type level card in that set, that would be extremely concerning, right? <laughs> That's an understatement. That's a yeah. colossal understatement. Uh, I mean, Luris might be the extreme of that concept, but I think there is that risk. And I do think they towed the line uh, in terms of the the strength of the cards because even though it didn't turn out to be a, a serious fixture in the metagame, the human lord that is Rick, Rick. 
um, was definitely viable at least uh, to yeah. you know to some undefeated league. And uh, I don't know how it did in the challenges, but some league wins with that Rick deck and Legacy uh, says that they were they're pushing the line there. Well, that's something we discussed way back when All right. we reviewed the first Commander set when we got Toxic Deluge and. Oh, what's the creature? The blue yeah, creature. True name nemesis. True name nemesis. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's that's the danger that was created. But this seems like it took it to another level. So I just wanted to flag that. But lots of you know, <laughs> You're lots. You're absolutely of great, right. It takes that exact problem to the next level. Lots of great printings this year, but very different from last year. Remember, last year we spent there were a lot of bannings and restriction, a lot of restrictions, not bannings. This year we got <laughs> one banning, no restrictions. Um, lots of uh. Well, last year we got a lot of kind of like both planeswalkers and then utility cards that really pushed the edge. This year I feel like we got more build around cards, which I think is more exciting in some ways. Um, and not like the, yeah, not like absurdly bro- broken ones like in Narset. Well, the Narset and I guess Karn was a build around card, but, um, this feels much more like we got build around cards, which I really appreciated. That's cool. Yeah, it's it that's an interesting distinction and one that um is hard to well, we can tease it out a little bit when we talk about some of the cards of the year, I think, and you can you can probably categorize a couple of the cards this year as as build, more build around versus slotting into existing archetypes. Yeah. Well, and that brings us to the real impact of all these changes and that is the metagame shifts over the course of the year. Steve, you've assembled yes. uh, well, a Herculean amount of data as so- we've been ongoing. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm very grateful for it, especially because one of the things we learned in preparing for this show is that our normal go-to source for some of these things, TC decks, has stopped updating their data. And so we don't have some of the detailed level in terms of card counts and top eight finishes that we would love to go to here, which means we're a little bit more reliant on the archetype breakdown that you've got for us for the year. Well, I want to I start at the end of last year... Um, which we covered in our last year set review, but I just want to contextualize and orient the listener by starting there with December 2019 data. Um, and then we'll go into... The, so there's two data sets to build from. The first is the uh, results of the Magic Online tournaments, chiefly the Vintage Challenges. Um, and I have a spreadsheet that has all the top eight deck lists from the Vintage Challenges, as we did last year and the year before that. And in fact, I have my spreadsheet has all the top eight from all the challenges going back to the beginning of the, you know, the challenges, which were the um, the Power Nine challenges and, and before, back in 2015. This, but, but so in addition to the top eight data, I also wanted to note that thanks to the Vintage Streaming Community Discord, I have and we have the... Uh, win rates of all of the decks and archetypes through the year. Um, so we have two data points. We have top eight appearances and frequencies and percentages for all of the Magic Online vintage tournaments, by which I mean the vintage challenges, the uh, Eternal Weekend tournaments, and the showcase qualifiers and so- showcase challenges, which I'll describe what those are in a moment. All told, Kevin, that's a data set, a remarkable data set of 93 <laughs> tournaments on Magic Online, which is just bonkers <laughs> compared to previous years. Um, you might recall a few a few years ago, let's see, let me get the year right. Back in 2016 and 17, there was only one tournament a month. 
And then in 2018, they started doing weekly vintage challenges. Okay. So, Kevin, what happened, the first thing that happened this year that was interesting is that they restructured the schedule for the vintage challenges. And this, this is probably, probably a lot of people have forgotten about this or when this actually occurred. I couldn't remember whether this happened in 2020 or 2019. But starting with April, the weekend of April 25th and 26th, the Vintage Challenge schedule went from being weekly to one on Saturday and one on Sunday. So two per weekend. So that means as of late April, we have two Vintage Challenge data points almost for every weekend. There's an exception where we get, <laughs> where they're replaced with a qualifier or challenge or uh, showcase challenge. But that just means we get a lot more. We go from having, a couple years ago, from having monthly vintage data now to, to weekly to now <laughs> 100 data points per year. So pretty incredible how much data for we have for vintage to be able to paint a portrait of with the vintage metagame. This is far beyond what you know we could have dreamed of years ago. You know, mm-hmm. Kevin? <laughs> Well, um, and this year, everything you said is true, but it's also in the extreme because of the extra quantity of events and high quality events that we have due to COVID. Yes. And uh, we're going to talk about that as one of our future points. But the fact that we have Gen Con and Eternal Weekend events in here yes. bolsters this fact even further. Yeah, and we hit records on Eternal Weekend by far, the largest events online. But mm-hmm. when COVID hit and people were forced to shelter in place in March and April, the cha- weekly challenges were hitting above 100 um, that's since yeah, gone that's back impressive. to a normal, yeah, a normal set of numbers. Um, okay. So the key to, this is very confusing and it's hard for me to actually keep in mind since I didn't get to participate. I, I didn't really play very much magic online this year compared to last year, which is a little bit strange given COVID. <laughs> I think it was because I was spending a lot of my weekends <laughs> in the yard <laughs> outdoors, uh-huh. uh, in my place, in my house. Um, I blame having a swimming pool but um, <laughs> <laughs> during a pandemic. But, um, okay, in 2019, Kevin, you there were qualifiers and playoffs. And basically, if you top-aided the certain tournaments interspaced out through the year, you qualified for the Vintage Championship that was held in January of 2020. For 2020, this is what they did for Vintage. Mm-hmm. What they did was they had three seasons. There were no vintage tournaments for the first season. And the key mm-hmm. to understand the seasons is that everything feeds, the, the, the tournament seedings feed into a large event that has eight players playing at a TBD location in real life for mm-hmm. real good prizes. I think the bottom prize is like $5,000 cash. Yeah, yeah. But to get into this event, you have to win a showcase uh tournament yeah. uh basically the way the way it's structured is you have to first qualify for the qualifier by top aiding one of the three season challenges and then these challenge and then the qualifiers themselves which are fed by these challenges have i think the fir- the the season 2 one which was the first one for vintage had 21 players i don't know how many were in the last one, which was the season three one, but I I assume it was probably around thirty players, somewhere thereabouts. The winners of those two, the two vintage winners of those tournaments, get in this eight player tournament that'll be held in twenty twenty one. 
That's the important point. <laughs> and it's big. It's a great prize structure. Uh, I can tell you what it is. So for the actual tournament, this eight-player tournament, first place is $20,000. There you go. And the competitors are the five the five winners of the showcase qualifi- showcase qualifiers, the constructed ones, the winner of the limited one, and then two winners of each of the showcase opens. So the point is that for the first season, it wasn't vintage that qualified. It was another format. I don't remember what it was. I don't need to tell you what that is. <laughs> um, and so mm-hmm. instead of having a vintage championship, they had this instead. Um that you get to you get to go to this other presumably non-vintage tournament <laughs> that has a seventy thousand dollar prize pool. Um, <laughs> presumably the, non-vintage, yeah, yeah. But the reason <laughs> it was confusing is because in season two, and season two occurred roughly in the middle months of the year, um, and then in season three, which were the you know the last few months of the year, there were Saturday challenges were replaced. Saturday Vintage Challenges were replaced by the Showcase Challenge, and then there would be a simultaneous Vintage, uh, sorry, Vintage Qualifier that happened at the end of those seasons. And I honestly don't remember when the qualifiers are. You can find that the Premier Play schedule has those, but I do have the dates for the the Showcase Challenges. So the reason it's it's oh yeah, the first Showcase Qualifier was actually on the twenty second. Um. And by the way, this is a weird thing, Kevin. They never published the deck lists for the showcase qualifiers for those season two. That is season. weird. Yeah, just they never publish it, and they apparently don't do that for the other formats either, the other constructed formats. But huh. we did. Someone, I think it was Justin, did get the deck list for those. So I have the deck list for the second one. I didn't get the deck list for the last one for this data set. <laughs> but it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. It's not super material. It doesn't. I have enough data points it doesn't super materially change the, <laughs> the data here. Right, right. So that's the backdrop that I wanted to explain, um, that there is quite a bit quite a bit in terms of the data um, to draw from. I did include the three Eternal Weekend tournaments. So, Kevin, I didn't... It, the f- <laughs> it was so frustrating because I scheduled my first out-of-town trip that weekend during the pandemic for that weekend and and I booked it down the coast of California. I couldn't get out of it cuz I got a fancy hotel and so on and so forth. For that weekend you <laughs> you did get to compete in those which were awesome. Um and there were 3 of them. I would have loved to have played in them. Um and those happened at the end of October, specifically October 23rd, 4th and 5th. And the winner of those events got uh, a painting of Telerian Academy, a painting of Library of Alexandria, and a painting of Mishra's Workshop, respectively, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, so, all of those events are are included in this 93-point data set. I did not include, but perhaps I should have, the Vintage Championship that included in, it was in January. I, will, I actually will go back after this recording and add that and try and track down the top eight from this the Season 3 uh, qualifier, if I can as well, but um, that's not super material to this this recording. Anything else, Kevin, on the state of online organized play for vintage? I should note. 
Well, just that we're going to talk about the importance of online Eternal Weekend and other tournaments as one of our stories for this year. And uh, so let's just put a pin in that and come back to it. Okay. So let's do what we did last year and just kind of give a month-by-month overview of what happened. Okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to start by the end, just orient everyone what happened at the end of December. At the end of December, the data as we had discussed before, was very strange in that, you know, you, you we went from um, a metagame that was predominantly PO in November, um, Bug, Bugar and Dredge, to one that in December went, was, well, statistically 6% shops, 28% PO, so PO surged in December, 3% Jeskai, so it was a collapse in Jeskai, 19% Dredge, and thirty and 31% Bug. Sorry, in November, Bug was 5%. Um, so so Bug surged at the end of the year and to 31%, and the next most popular archetype was PO at 28%. So we, we saw a lot of oscillations in 2019. At the beginning of January, things settled down a bit more. In fact, everything looked a lot more balanced. Shops were 15% of top eights in January. PO were 15, was 15%. Turbo Xerox decks, mostly Jeskai there, but also includes if they if they were in the top eights, Blue Red Delver, that sort of thing, were 20%. Dredge was only 12.5%. Bug and Bug R decks, Ren decks with... You know, with Deathrite Shaman, we're 17.5%. Oath was 10%. And then everything else, DPS, Landstill deck, Hate Bears, and there was a, a Ninja deck was 2.5%. <laughs> so the, the top deck was, if you combine, you know, was basically all in the same range was Turbo Xerox, the Bug decks, PO and Shops were all between 15 and 20%. Pretty, pretty balanced, actually, for January, wouldn't you say? Yeah. It's good format. So February, Kevin, um, things actually are pretty continuous. Uh, Turbo Xerox drops down quite a bit. PO edges up just a little bit. Shops is stable at 15%. Dredge falls a little bit to 10%. Bug and bug R variants are around 15%. The newcomer, though, in February, the big newcomer to the metagame, is the Hollowvine deck, which is this... Basically breaks out in February. We get four copies in in February, where it's basically a deck. It's it's a bizarre serum powder deck that uses Vengevine. It's basically the survival deck without survivals. <laughs> right. It has like Mem Knights, and it has just a huge amount of pitch spells in it. You know, like uh, uh, Commandeer, Misdirection, Force of Vigor, Unmask, all the good. You know, some have Unmask, all that good stuff. Yeah, um, the principles of pitch dredge applied to survival, right? But with with Memnite and Basking Rootwalla and Vengevine and Hollow Hollow Ones as your main creatures, mm-hmm. um, things though shift pretty significantly in March. Uh, Kevin, there's a huge surge in shops to thirty five thirty four percent of the metagame. Wow, I I don't know why, <laughs> um, but I will tell you the surge is on the back of Golos. Remind me when Golos was printed. Well, Golos was printed in 2019. It was in the core set. Yeah. 
Well, someone so figured Golos out that wasn't the, wasn't a new thing. Someone figured out that Golos was pretty good. <laughs> and well, began. I think part of it is just because Golos enables good land tutoring naturally by definition, and that's inherently good against the bizarre decks. the bizarre based decks. Yeah, with yeah. specifically with Bazooka Bog and Tabernacle, you can run those main deck. Right. Yeah. So it gives shops game. We begin to see Golo shops eclipse ever so slightly workshop aggro for the first time. And so Golos Golos just owns March. <laughs> it's it's by far <laughs> Golos's best I mean, well, Shops owns March at thirty five thirty four percent. Um Bug and Bug R variants combined are almost twenty percent. Oath is twelve and a half percent, but everything else is under ten percent basically for March. So huge swing. Um to Golos. Now, what happens in April and May is we get the companion mechanic and everything is just screwy. So yep. it's you can't almost really talk about it in terms of archetypes anymore because the archetypes kind of break down. Loris is just found across all the archetypes. It's it's found in a new Esper Turbo Xerox deck that you know with Bob and <laughs> there's like what do they call it? Cat Loris. I forget um the name of Janari and others there. Oh, uh, yeah. Their Esper deck that had like Bob, Bobcat. Yeah, Bobcat. That was it. Bobcat, <laughs> Cabal Therapy. <laughs> um, but basically, PO for April and May is about 25% of the of top eights. So PO is clearly one of the best decks to benefit from Loris. Mm-hmm. Um, the other deck that surges up, well, Turbo Xerox variants you know, as I said, surge up, but not Jeskai. Breach goes from basically nothing in the metagame. It's basically non-existent. So I'll tell you what Breach has. Breach has two two top eights, sorry, zero top eights in January, one top eight in February, zero top eights in March, four in April, and then 13 in May. So so Breach begins to to climb the metagame. And by the end of the Loris metagame, Breach and PO are basically the two top decks. And I, oh God, Kevin, I watched, I re, I played, I think I played in one of those events, one or two challenges, and I watched, I, I was playing uh, Ad Nauseam in one of the May events. It was so much fun with Loris. And I watched the finals, and it was just like a, it was like a, a Charlie Chaplin comedy show. It was like two players <laughs> just playing uh, Mystic Remora against each other. And then playing through or trying to play around, you know, the the PO deck and the in the breach combo deck were just, <laughs> you know, it was like Lavinia, Mystic Remora, you know, top, you know, it was just all this stuff back and forth, trying to deal with Remora's. It was incredibly entertaining, and and awesome. <laughs> um, but basically, breach becomes sixteen percent of the metagame, um, in in May. So you you've got this surge, and then. Loris is is banned and then errated, and things settle in a very interesting way. Everything collapses. It's like huh. everything just spreads and collapses. So what happens is uh, Shops becomes 12.5% of the metagame, PO 9.4%, Turbo Xerox 12.5%, uh, Breach 9%, Dredge 3%. 3%. Dredge, was, Dredge went away big time in April, May, and June, and in fact July. Dredge collapse. Dredge doesn't recover until the end of the year. It has a single-digit percent of top eight through the middle months of the year. The only thing that's double digits or above twelve and a half percent 
is bug and bug R variants combined are almost they're 19%. Um, Doomsday, I didn't mention this, hits 6% in April, collapses to 1% in May because it's terrible in the, well, not very good in the Loris metagame, and then climbs back to, <laughs> climbs to 5% in June. And Oath, by the way, is 6% in June. Um, I forgot to mention that so, Lutri decks in April were 10% of top eights. <laughs> so <laughs> Lutri was this, you know, was also a thing. Yeah. So the, the most represented deck in June was Bug? Well, it depends if you combine Bug and Bug R. They are. Yeah. It, broken down, uh, there were, so there were a total number of, of 64 um, decks among all the challenges in June. Bug okay. R specifically, you know, like Renan's was 12, 12 copies. There were two bug decks. So it was basically Bug R. Or if you ever you want to call it Ren, yeah, okay. you know, the Ren Wasteland, Deathrite, some of those had sure. uh, Arcanist in them. <laughs> um, sure, that sure. deck was the best deck what, in June. What, what's in second place then in June? Um, Turbo Xerox with eight copies is the next. Okay. But that. Pretty big drop there. Yeah, but it's only 12.5%. Yeah. So. Okay. In July, things consolidate even further in that direction, though. That's the weird thing. In fact, everything, all the big boys, shops, PO, Turbo Xerox, Breach, and Dredge are all in single digit percentages. Wow. What happens, Kevin? So, Bug in the Bug Ardex actually maintain their percentage. They go up to 22% of the metagame combined. And I can give you the disaggregated. Um, in July, Bug was five copies and Bug R was nine copies out of a total of 64 again. But guess what sucked up all the oxygen in the, in the room? This was, July was the breakout month for Doomsday. So Doomsday had oh. 13 copies and 20, 20% of the metagame. Nice. So Doomsday, isn't that strange that Doomsday surges in July? It, it's it's well it's predictable right if bug is doing so well everything else is collapsing that just creates I mean what is better what is doomsday better against than bug it's like every way that bug interacts doomsday trumps yeah so you know death right it ignores death right shaman doesn't care about that doesn't care about the, the small critters um doesn't care about uh Collector oof doesn't care no. about abrupt decay. No. Yep. <laughs> Assassin's trophy. Yeah. Tends not to care about wasteland. Right. So yep. so this 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 is all very interesting metagame, but very intense metagame dynamics. I mean, we never we never mm-hmm. saw the big three in twenty nineteen were a bit you know, over the last couple of years were shops, PO and Xerox. These are all three of those are in yep. single digits in July as of July. Yep. <laughs> and and Doomsday going to twenty percent? Crazy. But here's the other thing. There's a switch, Kevin. Hogak, the Hog, Hog, Hollow Vine begins to evolve into Hogak Vine. Mm-hmm. And that, Kevin, is 19% of top eights in July. So the big three uh-huh. are the Bug, Bugar, Doomsday, and Hogak Hollow Vine in July. Okay. Remarkable, isn't it? And just to give you the a specific. Very unusual metagame. Yeah. Especially because Hollowvine only Hollowvine in, in raw numbers goes from three copies in June to twelve in July, given this evolution. It actually peaks mm-hmm. in August. So let me tell you what happens to the Hogak vine in August. 
And most of the decks, not all of them, but most of them are are Hogak. It actually has more copies, but but the number of tournaments, the number of data points in August are greater. So it, it actually falls to 11. Sorry, it, it, it falls slightly to 17% in August. <laughs> but it's but that's actually the most top eights of any archetype. The Hogak Vine deck becomes the best performer in August. So you have nice. this evolution of shift in best performers, right? In July, mm-hmm. it's Doomsday, if you disaggregate the bug and bug R. And then August, it's Hogak Vine. Okay. Um, and then, again, same, basically continuous numbers for the other archetypes. The shops combined, Turbo Xerox, the Xerox decks combined are on single digits. PO inches up slightly to an 11.5%. Dredge is still at piddly five, 5 in July and then 7% in August, so piddly numbers for Dredge. Bug actually collapses in August, Bug and Bug R, to 10%, which is a halving. Um, but breach is the only one that sees an increase from nine percent to sixteen percent in August, so a slight metagame adjustment there. Mm-hmm. September sees a a complete collapse in the other direction. Breach goes to two percent, Kevin, in wow. September. Yeah, and Turbo Xerox Jeskai decks inclusive are at two percent in September. Wow. Po eight percent shops creep up to twelve and a half percent. Mostly, again, on the back... Well, there's some real interesting things going on with shops. Um, Golo Shops is is by far the most it's popular. still primarily shop, uh, Golos? Still primarily yeah. Golos. There are, though, this. there's an emergent two-card Monty deck that happens in the summer uh, that is built not around Painter and Helmline, but around um, Dark, Death set, uh, Dark Depths combo and Helmline mm-hmm. um, with Mirror, the Mirror... Mirage Mirror. Yeah. Okay. Um, so where were we? Were we in September, Kevin? <clears throat> yeah, September. You had gotten to 12.5% shops. What's above that? Uh, Bug and Bug R combined for 25%. Doomsday is 12.5%. And then the Hogak wow. and Holovine decks are eighteen are 19%. So for th- basically three consecutive months, the Hog- Hogak, Holovine decks are basically between 17 and 19% of top eights. <laughs> and bug goes 22 10 and then 25 percent bug and bug r which is wow yeah those those really maintain their presence this takes us to october which is the month of eternal weekend where we have the biggest data points because we have how big were those tournaments 300 400 players all three of them or just the first two you remember kevin you played it i don't remember how big the third one was the the second one was the bigger of the first two was it not because the first one, I seem to remember it being something like 390. They were big. <laughs> they were they were the biggest vintage events in Magic Online the modern history. era by yeah. far on Magic on by far for Magic Online because the largest before that was like 130 something, maybe 140, 150. Yeah. Okay. So October, the big month, things just start just flatten out. Bug and Bargar combine. I know it's an unfair combining because when you disaggregate them, <laughs> they're closer to everything else. Is about 22%. Shops combined, 12%. PO combined, PO is 16%, rounded up. Turbo Xerox decks are 12%. Breach, 6%. Dredge, 8%. Doomsday, 12%. And the Hogak Vine decks, back down to earth, 8%. Kevin. Those just those Down are ninety five percent. Those are ninety five percent of the top eights. Just those archetypes. Hmm. Okay. So some consolidation. 
yeah, everything just kind of flattens out. To me, I think October looks like a very balanced metagame. What's at the top then in October? Bug and Bugar combined at 22%, but nothing else is... The next best thing is uh, PO at 16%. Very balanced. Um, okay. November, um, shops actually surge up to 18%, which is the second best month they had of the year. Recall that they did really well in March, but they're at uh, 18%. Again, mostly on the back of Golos. Although, actually, there were some car shops decks that emerge around here. Fleet Wheel Cruiser, <laughs> some aggro deck. Car yeah. shop, Fleet Wheel Cruiser technology t- as a tactic gave aggro shops a little bit more of a boost here. Um, the, the, tied, though, in November is Dredge's best month. Is eighteen percent for Dredge, so Dredge, which barely had any month in the year that was above ten percent, suddenly did really well in November. Um, And we could speculate as to why. We can talk about that later. Um, The rest of things are eleven percent. The Hogak decks and Hollowvine combined eleven percent. Bug and Bugar combined eleven percent. Breach at ten percent. Turbo Xerox at seven percent. Po at six percent. and White Eldrazi was 3%, and there are a couple of other decks, but basically that's about 90% of the top eights, top eights in that November. And then for December, there's a little bit of consolidation. Um, Shops is, falls a little bit to 17%. PO, by the way, there's zero PO, PO decks in the top eights in December. Zero. Dang. Turbo Xerox at 15%. Breach at 12.5%. Dredge at 12.5%. Doomsday at 6%. Hogak at 9%. And the bug R decks were at wow. The bug there were zero bug R decks in December. There were three, just three bug decks out of uh, sixty-four. So that's just a couple percentage points there. How strange! Dang. How so, <laughs> how so very strange. Well, you can- and and a key thing to recognize about the second half of this year is that there were no breakout printings in the second half of the year. Yeah. The the sets like Core Set, Jumpstart, Zendikar Rising, Commander Legends, I mean, these did not produce breakout cards. But, but so everything was just driven by internal metagame dynamics, right? Like surging yes. in one thing, then the Predator comes the next month. Surge in that, then the Predator comes the next... But I can't yes. explain the complete disappearance of things. <laughs> That's what I don't understand. How are there zero PO decks in <laughs> December top eight and zero bug R decks despite, you know, great month just a few months before with really no meaningful changes in the card pool? Well, I, I take that back. There there were big printings at the end of the year, but basically two. <laughs> Hull Breacher and Opposition Agent. Yeah. But your point is generally correct. There weren't a lot of big printings. Okay, so now that you have a sense of the data and the kind of the oscillations, let me or the top eight data, let me share or relay the win percentages. The the aggregate metagame, which they have, it says combined 2019-2020 metagame. This is, again, the data collected by the vintage streaming community on Discord, um, has the metagame breakdown is, as, as this. Um, they have combo at 21.4%, which I, I assume includes, they have a definition here, they have combo at 21.5% of the metagame. Uh, Xerox decks at 20%. Bizarre decks at 145 Shops decks at 15%. 
Deathrite Shaman decks at 13%, Oath at 3.5%, Other Blue at 6%, Eldrazi at 1.5%, and Other at 4%. And then you can see the specific ways in which they're disaggregated by archetype and then with win percentages. So um, the key thing here is that the win percentages for the archetypes are... I'll just do it at the archetype, lo- archetype level because I think that's probably most insightful here. They have Ravager, which I assume yeah. basically workshop aggro at 50.5% win percentage. So meaning it wins slightly more than 50% of its matches. Prison, which I assume includes most of the Golos decks at 48% win percentage. Dredge at 52.2% win percentage. Hogak Vine at 53.2% win percentage. Hollow Vine, 49.2% win percentage. Again, the difference being the Hogak Vine, as I described, has, well, Deathrite Shaman, more mana, um, you know, it doesn't have as many pitch spells, so right. on. Um, Hollow Vine, 49.2% win percentage. Xerox Control at 50.9%. Xerox Combo, which I believe is Breach, mm-hmm. and not including Doomsday, although Xerox Combo could certainly be a Doomsday deck. So that's basically a proxy for Breach. Xerox Aggro, which I assume is like Delver at 49.9%. That's a tiny percent of the field at 1.5%. Bug, 52.6% of the field. Uh, per, win percentage, rather. Um, Four-color control, four, 51.5% win percentage. PO, 49.8% win percentage. And Ritual, which I assume is mostly Doomsday with a little bit of DPS, 52.3% win percentage. So it's all all the win percentages hover between the lowest was 48% for Prison, Chop Prison, and the highest by... A hair, well, not a little more than a hair, was 53.2% for Hogak Vine. And there are confidence intervals here, which I won't give, but basically, Hogak Vine has a 53% win percentage, which is the best win percentage according to this data. Mm-hmm. Um, 52% was Dredge and Doomsday and Bug and Breach. So those are the next best performing decks. Everything else is 51% or less. So there you have it. That is the overview of the vintage metagame of late. Um, pretty remarkable. Let me just give you, I hate to toggle between this, but the raw numbers by archetype and percentage, Kevin, I think might be useful. You know, let me let me give this later on when we're giving out our Moxie Awards. Yeah. So there we go. So that forms the backdrop for our Moxie Awards for the year, right? I mean... That is the data you just reviewed is one key contributing factor to how we're going to assess, especially cards and decks, and then by association, uh, sets and stories for the year. Anything else before we lay the groundwork uh, for the moxies, Steve? I don't think so. So for review, we've been doing this for a while. I think our audience probably has a pretty good idea, but in case you're new, the moxies are our annual awards for four categories for the year each year in this case 2020 and the four categories are the best new card the best new uh, set the best new deck well it doesn't have to be new the best deck (laughs) and the most important or impactful story for the whole year it's worth noting that the language that we use here for these awards is intentionally open-ended, and part of the fun is debating something like best or most impactful or, or what have you, as well as the word new in some cases. 
so let's talk about our nominees. Now, we tweeted about these in an open-ended fashion to our audience on Twitter and got some great responses, as usual. We have a couple that we have added of our own volition as well, which is our uh, prerogative. So we're going to start with new cards for the year. It's the simplest thing to quantify because new printings are fairly obvious, and we can bolster that with some data about appearances. Now, as I alluded to earlier, unfortunately, TC decks, which used to be our go-to for card counting, has not been updated since July, basically. So we don't have good full-year metrics for these cards. So we can't do a nice comparison quarterly like we did, an average per month like we did last year. But our archetype breakdown and the data that Steve just reviewed will have to serve as a proxy for that. Candidates for the best card of the year are, in no particular order, Luris of the Dream Den, Underworld Breach, Soul Guide Lantern, Sprite Dragon, Lutri the Spell Chaser, and Hull Breacher, as well as Thassa's Oracle. Honorary mentions go to Opposition Agent, Rick Steadfast Leader, <laughs> Luminarch Aspirant, and Archon of Ameria. We're not going to break down the data on each one of these in a fully structured way because we're lacking it. We're going to comment on how the metagame influences our assessment of each one of these cards. Now, 2020, being the year that it is, has one humongous asterisk that just cannot cannot be elided when it comes to evaluating card of the year because it has the first banning in vintage history, especially for power level or you know purely metagame power reasons in well basically since the inception of the format steve i mean what would you call the last banning in vintage due to power reasons yeah it's it was time vault in 1996 so yeah exactly it's incredible and, and we know the history <laughs> and we know the history of that now because uh, we covered it in some great detail so the it's not I would not call it entirely unprecedented exactly, but at this point, Luris remains I would argue the only card banned in vintage for pure power reasons. Pure power reasons. Yeah. Would you agree? Yes, I think that's probably right. In this moment that's right. Because they the un as we covered before, they unbanned all the cards that were banned for power level reasons before, purely. So it is the only yes. one. And we we totally missed the boat in our review on how powerful it is to have an extra card in your starting hand. We just misunder under we just totally misapprehended the value of that. Both yeah. underestimating Completely that agree. slight value, but also we underest we overestimate the cost of a sideboard slot. Yes. And we covered that pretty thoroughly in our report card on Ikoria. So, Steve, what metrics do we like to use and can we use in this particular year to talk about how we would measure the best card of a year? Well, it's it's apples and oranges. You know, we can't we can't do what we normally do. So I don't I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so and there's a reason why, for example, you in your metagame analysis did some so took some measures to be a pre and post Luris analysis. We simply have to account for the fact that Luris was an unprecedented flash in the pan. A month worth of the greatest dominance for any single card that we've seen in the format. 
and and impact there on the metagame and just all factors right we we you and i joked before the show about how we could try to count Luris by counting archetypes, except basically every archetype played Luris yes. <laughs> within reason. It was basically you seventy to eighty percent. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, you had it in shops. You had it in breach decks. You had it in PO, of course. You had it in Xerox decks. I mean, it was just every archetype had, had a Luris basically. And so we can't use. We don't have enough raw data to really. I mean, the raw data is there, but it's meaningless because of how dominant it was, right? Yes. It's, you know, as you said, what was the number? 80, 80 or more, more percent? It was, yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah. And and so it defies comparison to any other card for any other period of time. And there's no archetype that can really be pointed to. I mean, obviously, some archetypes benefited better from Luris, and we could discuss that. But it just a, it defies comparison in any kind of meaningful way. Right. Which in my assessment, is a mark in favor of greatness, right? But, so the, the point of the matter is, is that Luris stands alone, defies defies measurements, which means we can apply some standard measurements to some of our other cards. So for example, um, let's call Thassa's Oracle, right? Thassa's Oracle, in your rundown of the metagame from a few minutes ago, stands out because it was, it's obviously the, the linchpin card in Modern Doomsday, and so there's no denying that the printing of Thassa's Oracle was a, a serious contributing factor to the success of Doomsday in the mid parts of this year. But it's not only Doomsday where Oracle was felt, right? It was also in some variants of the Breach decks. It was the win condition for a while before those decks consolidated on Brain Freeze. But unfortunately, the next card on, our, on my list here in front of me is Soul Guide Lantern. And I don't mean unfortunately because it's not good. Oh, unfortunately, I mean... It transcends archetypes, right? Soul Guide Lantern is the the sideboard card to beat all sideboard cards for <laughs> in terms of this year. Uh, it slices and dices. It's brought in so yeah. many different archetypes, and in some cases has been main deck. And again, that's the Luris impact being felt there a little bit because when Luris was legal, Soul Guide Lantern was a main deckable card, and that's not the standard anymore. But it's still certainly possible. So again, this year. Uh, defies comparison because we have a, an archetype specific card like Thassa's Oracle, mostly archetype specific, and a completely archetype crossing card like Soul Guide Lantern that we have to try and evaluate one versus the other. You mentioned earlier on in the show, Steve, about build around cards. So talk a little bit more about that in context of this top top half dozen cards. Which of them do you consider build arounds? You know, Breach really creates a new archetype and it was so fascinating yeah. to watch that happen in the early really in the early you know um months of the year because the card was just clearly broken they printed a yogmoss will at two mana i i, w- I really tried to right. make that work w- like it was a yogmoss will in a grixis deck and it just was it was they had really just made it too difficult no matter how many fetch lands I put in the bin or preordains I put in the bin or other stuff, I just couldn't get it to work where I could get enough value out of playing Ancestral Recall and Time Walk and so on and not, you know, primarily Ancestral so many times, you know, to, even with top deck tutors, I, it, it just didn't work. I just found myself completely hamstrung by the, the lack of cards in my graveyard 
And right. I don't know who it was. I think I saw Mike Solimasi was the first person I saw who played uh, uh, Brain Freeze as a way. And to me, I was like, that's too gimmicky. Brain Freeze? But really, once it was all sorted out, it's, it was brilliant. Because all you need to win is a either choose one of these three cards. A Lion's Eye Diamond, a Lotus Petal, or a Black Lotus. Brain Freeze and Underworld Dreams. That's it. Which means that if you have, you know, basically, <laughs> basically Brain Freeze plus Underworld Dreams, two unrestricted cards, a two, two card on the spot, I win combo with minimal amount of mana. You literally need, right? At the end of that, if you have a, you know, you literally need zero mana when you cast, um, Underworld Breach. If you have, a Lotus Petal, a Lion's Eye Diamond, or a Lotus in your graveyard. And the Lotus Petal, you only you need six other cards to get double Petal and a Brain Freeze. Right. Which is just so absurd. I, I, I mean, I, did, I just decided, I thought, like, probably by April or May, that it's just clear the brain, that this deck is the most ridiculous deck. And the weird thing about it is that it just is so easy to disrupt, attack along one angle, but then Vintage offers you enough tools to attack on other angles, right? So it, it's shut down entirely mm-hmm. by a Tormod's Crypt. <laughs> but once you Crypt, you know, but the Crypt doesn't stop Mentor or a Sprite Dragon. Right. So, um, I don't know. I, it was just really fun to watch. Oh my god, I love, as I said, I loved watching the Remora <laughs> Breach decks. <laughs> they were crazy, right. to, crazy fun to see those go up against each other. I, I, I don't know. I think, I think Breach is just Patently ridiculous to build Yogmoss Will as a permanent, but it's really not Yogmoss Will. And it, it <laughs> so which of go ahead. Yeah, so which of the other build arounds here? So Kevin, I played in the after the January 11th Vintage Online Championship, where I played Dredge, and I made the same mistake with Dredge in that tournament that I made in the 2019 Eternal Weekend Championship, which was not playing Leyline of Sanctity in my sideboard. Um, I didn't play on a, a Vintage Challenge until Mar- until March. Where I played Doomsday, and I played a lot of leagues leading up to that with Doomsday. I played one tournament, and then I played a couple tournaments in April and May, and then I didn't pl- I didn't play really again until the, did it, until the past month and a month or so. Um, Magic Online Vintage Events, Vintage Challenges, that is. Um, and Kevin, I played a lot of Doomsday in March, um, leading up to the challenge I played in, and. The thing, and this is right, you know, right before Loras came out, really. And then when Loras came out, I switched to playing other stuff because I wanted to, you know, mess around with weird stuff with Loras. Um, <laughs> right. But um, when I was playing in March, I was playing it. I, I one of my matches I played against. I remember this. I played against Justin Franks, Power Nine, and when I I think he was playing PO and I played Doomsday and I narrowly won, and he said something like. In the, which I think is a very, you know, accurate observation at the time. It's like seems like Thassa's Oracle has like improved this deck by at least fifteen percent. It turns out that it was much more than fifteen percent. That yeah. Thassa's Oracle was a transformative effect on the de- on the Doomsday. So I don't know whether you call that build around, but I I mean it was more like it was like a sixty percent or a hundred percent increase in power level for Doomsday. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because Doomsday goes from well, being zero if, top if laboratory, eight to, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. If Laboratory Maniac hadn't existed already, right, we might be reconstructing Doomsday around Thassa's Oracle right now, or had been earlier in the year. 
but it just so happens that it was a conceptually so overlapping with with lab man that it didn't take an earth shattering reconstruction of that deck in order to make it so much better right and i don't remember what our predictions were for thos's oracle um I assume that I was non-zero, and I assume I, I beat you on that. But whatever it was, <laughs> I underestimated in terms of the course of the year. Yes. Um, and in, inside of its first quarter, maybe not, but yeah. there's a lot of mitigating factors there. Right. I mean, as we just mentioned, Doomsday really breaks out after Loris is banned. And not only Naturally. that, it takes a couple months after that, right? <laughs> I mean, it was like, well, let me go back and look. Doomsday breaks out right. in, well... It breaks out in July, not June. So it was basically, yeah, June it didn't exist, and then July it ex- explodes. Um, so the thing, the thing about it though is the reason it's more than just a, you know, you can't. It's almost unquantifiable how profound the effect of Thassa's Oracle is because you go from Doomsday being zero percent of top eights for many, many, you know, for years to suddenly like almost twenty percent of top eights. Like that's an, you can't quantify zero to twenty percent. There's no percentage increase. It's just it's you know massive, um, and it, part of it is. I mean, there's so many different reasons why. I'll just list a couple. One is that um, you don't have to get a trigger once you resolve the creature. The most obvious yeah. reason is because it costs one less mana, which is huge because you can build a Lotus Thassa and still have the mana left over to play whatever, right? But that's not even necessarily the biggest. Um, the fact that it's it's more compact in terms of your flexibility in terms of kills, it's also, I mean, it it's not strictly superior to Labman because with Labman, I mean, there is the reality that you can't just punch through the Oracle and win unless you have zero cards in your library. Um, because... Right. If you have two cards left in your library and you put a cavern of you can put a cavern of souls in your in your doomsday pile, which I like to have cavern in my sideboard, so you can punch it through a bunch of pyroblasts. But it does mean that if they have pyroblasts, they can still pyroblast in response to the trigger, which means you have to build the pile so you have no cards left in your library, which is a little bit trickier. You might need to use some street wraiths and so on and so forth to get that to happen. Um, but it does it is vastly simpler. <laughs> than trying to figure out how to create a draw trigger post to maniac, you know, it means you can just draw into it instead of having to set up Naturally. a draw trigger. Yeah, um, and it makes the the piles more compact. You can put whereas you would have to put probably an additional mana into the pile with maniac. You can just put protection in that slot with the the, the three cards you draw with ancestral. It's just so much more resilient. It's so much yeah. more compact. And it's and here's the crazy <laughs> thing, Kevin. It is so much faster. That's really the yeah. thing that I think took a long time for people to figure out. Is that you might re- yeah, I don't know if you remember each one of the effects amplifies the other. Um the speed element though. I think you remember Kevin the very first Maniac Doomsday list to top 8 a vintage event. I'm sure you remember it well. When I top 8 the Waterberry Way back in was it 2011? Yeah. Um, that deck, I went down from four rituals, I think, to one to maybe zero. You wouldn't be caught dead playing less than four dark rituals in the in the Oracle Doomsday deck because you're trying yeah. to win on turn one and turn two, and in fact, you're mulliganing aggressively to try and you know somewhat aggressively to try and get fast kills because yeah. you're dealing with decks that can you know the longer it takes to win, the more things that can go haywire. So, I mean, this deck has an unbelievable number of turn one kills. It's shocking, actually, 
how uh, because you need so little to win on turn one. Basically, what you need to win on turn one is a dark ritual, a doomsday, and a street wraith, and you win and a land, of course. <laughs> and you can have a win right there, you know. So, yeah, it's wild. Well, there's no denying the power of the Doomsday deck this year, and it's going to be in the conversation for the best deck. But I must say that the fact that Thassa's Oracle was... How do you quantify a a new card that's an incremental improvement over an existing thing? Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't... Because... (laughs) I think it's more Go ahead. it's It's a strong incremental improvement, and it's an improvement on multiple axes, as you've just laid out. And it's the reason why the deck became such a strong contender, especially at the midpoint of the year. At the same time, uh, you know, the Thassa's Oracle, the application for Oracle as a standalone, like Grixis breach kind of finisher, pretty much died in the in in a, a whimper instead of a bang, right? The <laughs> we were experimenting with just consult and Oracle as wind conditions in Grixis builds for a while and then this all just went away. Well here's what the, I would- impact on doomsday is important from a power standpoint but at the same time i don't think it is i don't think it meets my threshold for the my card of the year because of how incremental it was well let me let me ask you something well let let me draw an analogy rather than frame it as a Mm -hmm. question i would suggest that thassa's oracle is to doomsday what force of vigor it was to dredge so force of vigor allowed dredge to discard you know, basically go manaless. It didn't need to have like six or seven rainbow lands in the sideboard and then emerald charms and stuff like, and chain of vapors. So it was transformative yeah. in the sense that it allowed Dredge to do something. To, it saved a lot of space, design space, um, and, and was much more efficient in that access. I think that's essentially... Mm. Now, you could say that's incremental improvement, but it really is transformative. It, it's a massive power-up, massive boost. And I think I think I think Doomsday saw think, a corresponding uh, improvement from yeah. Maniac to Oracle because of the three things I mentioned: the efficiency, the compactness, the uh, the lack of need. It's not even just the efficiency; it's the lack of fact that you don't need to have a trigger <laughs> to win the game. <laughs> is almost as important. Yeah. Well, that's fair. I think that's that comparison is is all right. The um, th- there's no denying that it was a huge a huge impact on the deck. At the same time, you're talking about a card that impacted, um, let's call it one and a half archetypes yeah. throughout the year, when there's a couple of cards yeah. out there that impacted more than one and a half archetypes, right? Yeah. So so what's the next card on our list? Well, so I was asking you which cards are built arounds. Do you consider other cards on Hol- this list built arounds? Hol- Hole Breacher is definitely a build around. There are about, I don't know, maybe a half dozen or more decks mm-hmm. in this in this set in this data set where you have basically like these control decks built around Hull Breacher, um, especially in the last few months of the year, they use like, basically they look like Grixis control decks with draw sevens, but with three or four Hull Breachers at the core. And those decks top yeah, eight. Thieves. Enough. They look like thieves. Yeah. But with like, yeah, exactly. They're thieves decks. You're right. Yeah. Um, those decks are, are, but there's, there's been some non Grixis ones too. I've seen a couple of other variants. Yeah. Those are definitely a build around. I think Hull Breachers have been a build around. I've seen opposition agent put into like doomsday cyborgs and things because you can ritual it out pretty sil- mm-hmm. pretty pretty good, um, yeah. but that's less that's more of a tactical thing than a build around. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I don't necessarily believe that that the, whether it's a build around or a, just a huge tactical improvement has to be determinative. And 
deciding whether a card is, <laughs> you know, I mean, Loris isn't really a, I mean, it definitely shapes the tactical inclusions. Like people are, we're going from, you know, lightning bolts to seal of fires and things like that. Um, but I, I, yeah, I would, I don't really think it, it wasn't really, we spent a lot of time talking about it. It really wasn't strategic in the sense that it didn't, I mean, it definitely boosted PO and breach, but it, it didn't really shape the archetype distribution in a super strong way. It was just, it went into everything, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that. Except Lutri was built around. I, I, I'll say that. Uh, well, y- by necessity. Yes. I mean, look, if, if Lutri's built around, then Luris is built around in the sense well, that you could, you only get to use this combination of cards due to the companion mechanics. So you got to take the tautology part out of it. Yeah, right? but if Lu- if Luris L- goes and shops, was more of a build around than Luris. If yeah, if Lu- if Luris goes and shops, Z- Xerox, uh, Breach, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> combo. I mean, it's just it's yeah. It's, the thing is, and I know we've already skipped ahead past you know other cards, but Luris defies comparison so badly. You have to factor into this discussion that we didn't have, an, with good reason, we didn't have enough time to fully mature our Luris decks. The format was scrambling well, so hard to to figure out the best way to use Luris, and it, there was a lot of scattershot to begin with. I don't believe yes. that Luris Shops was the best way to use well, Luris. Well, to begin with, I agree with you, but I think it, I think if there had been another month, I think we would have seen it would have been more apparent at the archetype level. I think it probably would have consolidated well, around PO and well, Breach. I yeah, do. You, you were saying the same thing then. Yeah. It, but the point is we didn't have that month. Right. And so to say that that Luris was less of a build around because you could just throw it into all this other stuff is a little bit, it's, it's missing the point a little bit because you only had a month, well, right? It, it didn't, like. Cr- yeah, it changed everything tactically, but it didn't create a new deck like Breach did. It created it, it created new yeah. decks in the sense that like these decks would not have existed without it and these cards would not have but it didn't create an entirely new archetype in that yes. sense. I would agree. I would agree. I think that's fair. At the same time, I do think there probably was a best one or two Luris decks. I, and we would have arrived at that. I given think we did. I think it was Breach and PO at the end. That's what I'm saying. Okay. That's fair. I think we were we we only had about a week of that though. Yeah, <laughs> like there's just there's no two ways about it. Even if you're super confident that that's true, <laughs> pointing to a week of results, maybe two weeks worth of results, is it, it points to it reinforces the fact that we just didn't have enough time for this thing to mature, right? Yeah. But anyway, I, I simply I, I I make that case just because I feel like one of the things we have to factor into this discussion for both deck and card and the other to by extension is that it was the right thing to do to ban Luris at that time, but it means that it stymies our assessment of its impact because it was also just so fast. Okay. Let's, let's move on to one more key card and and that that's kind of defies some of the other categorizations that we've had so far. And that's Sprite dragon, right? Yes. It's clearly not a build around, it it filled some it could valuable be. It spots. It just hasn't proven to be. <laughs> That's right. It, um, it filled valuable slots, but existing slots in in multiple existing decks. And as we discussed when we reviewed it, it it really pushes the extreme of growing creatures and a couple of key axes, which is why it was so popular this year. At the same time, it, it didn't spawn any new archetypes. 
it uh, it's a little bit like Luris in the sense that it just filled a really strong role in a couple of different archetypes. Not to the logical extreme that Luris did, of course. Where do you fit Sprite Dragon on the various metrics that we've been discussing? I view it as a very powerful tactic, mm-hmm. you know, that's used by multiple archetypes. Like kind of like a Lavinia, is what, or a mentor. It's kind of like Lavinia or a mentor. It's mm-hmm. used by multiple archetypes for its. It's. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a split between the two. It's not disruptive like Lavinia <laughs> is, but it's very fast like Mentor. Yeah. Um. It, it's. It fills that role. So you know how Lavinia is used by both Jeskai and Po. Mm-hmm. Well, Sprite Dragon is similar in that positioning. It's used by Breach and Po and Po, and it can yeah. and sometimes by Xerox decks as well, non-Breach Xerox decks. It's just. It's just a flat-out good vintage card. Yeah, and it probably will be for a long time. <laughs> Brian Demars messaged me on Twitter uh, when it came out. He said something like, um, "How good would this have card been back in the Growatog days? It would have been bonkers." Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been unstoppable. Um, okay, so I think those are the top of the list, right? In my opinion. We have a couple of other honorable mentions. You mentioned Opposition Agent. I don't think that needs comparison to the other cards. Uh, and there's a few other notables like Luminarchus Aspirant and Archon of Amiria. Those cards are cool and they've had their place, but I don't think they compare to these these top six. So the top six are Luris, Breach, Soul Guide Lantern, Sprite Dragon, Lutri, and Hull Breacher. So... I think what this... That's our six. Yeah, I think what this does... I, f- I feel like we can striate that into a top three or four pretty quickly. Yeah, the top the top three is, I think, Oracle, Breach, and Loris, right? Or did you want to put Soul Guide Lantern in there? I, I think Soul... I think... T- the, so- I just want to make one... Uh, sorry, I, we're having some... I think Soul Guide Lantern has underperformed my expectations. I just, really? Yeah, I, I want to say that. Both in my personal testing as well as more generally, I think it's underperformed. I thought it would be much more ubiquitous. I thought the advantages over Tormont's Crypt, because the ability to pin that first card and to get a draw out of it, I thought would it would be much more present, and it just hasn't been as much as I expected. It's seen play, and continues to see play, but it's not nearly as prominent as I thought it would be. I think that it's tall breaches. And I think that's fair. I think that we had... We- we had high hopes for it, as you said, and while it has a good place in certain sideboards, it's not nearly as omnipresent and it's not nearly as strong I th- as we had assessed it in our review. I think one of the reasons, one of the things that's hurt it is that there's so many Xerox decks between Breach and Doomsday and Jeskai and so on. There just isn't a lot Think about how good Days has been in the metagame. There isn't a lot of extra mana, extra moxin floating around. I think that's yeah. hurt this card. I think the efficiency, the, the prime efficiency of Ravenous Trap and Tormod Script has made those cards seem more play than this. Even though this is, I think, better than the than those in, in many cases against Dredge. Yeah. Well, and I agree with you, and I think there's another factor too, and that is that the Holovine and Hogak Vine decks are better at yes. getting incremental incremental threatening like incremental game winning value out of their graveyards such that you have to break this thing so quickly and those decks can recover so well 
Yes. That because it's not a permanent answer to the graveyard, it's it, you just can't buy enough tempo with it I'm, properly. I'm so glad I own Tabernacles for Eternal Weekend next year because <laughs> it's just yeah uh, yeah that's exactly right. Well, well, um, and Tabernacle is de- rapidly decreasing in its utility, unfortunately, well, because of those decks too. Well, I mean, it's still good against the, them, but but I think still good. Yeah, I yeah I think like Leyline is clearly proven itself you know anyway um so let's just look i think we're being around the bush here's the fulcrum the question is whether you take the year as a year or whether you just look for the most impactful card like are you looking for the most sustainable impact over time or overall Mm -hmm. aggregate impact if it's sustainable impact for me the answer is under is is underworld breach if it's overall impact to me it's loris you can't i mean Loris hit the vintage metagame like a meteorite. We've never seen anything like it. Not even close. Yeah. 70% of all decks, if not more. Nothing's come close. So I think that's the question. Yeah. You're looking for, like, when you say best something of the year, like, imagine a sports team or, or a sports league where you have a player who is, like, the best player of all time for two months and then gets an injury and is like or <laughs> is caught doping and gets kicked off the tour. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, versus someone who is like all star, the best performer over the course of the year. That's really what this question comes down to, to me. Yeah, yeah. Hole breacher. I think you're totally right. Hole breacher. Now, even if we had the metrics that could tell us like percentage, you know, appearances per month, like we did last year, where we had these advanced metrics, we could say like per co- per copies per month. Do we have any of those metrics yeah. for these right now? Anything that we can use? <laughs> We only partially, not not enough to compare. I just don't think Hull Breacher has enough appearances to even be in the conversation right now. Um, even if it, yeah, if agreed. it, if Hull Breacher was in like a third of these top eights, then we would. But it's it's clearly not that much. It's more like at a quarter of these top eights at most. <laughs> so we yeah. don't need to we don't need to delve into the detail the data that much to make this determination. It's yes, you know, exactly. do you want the two month All Star or the the well let's take one more look at let me look one more look at data at breach's data breach breach was zero in january wow zero uh, just i'll give you the raw numbers zero in january one copy in february zero march four april 13 may 6 june 2 july 14 august 1 september 6th october 7 november and 8 december that's not really a standout Throughout the whole year, that's that's. I mean, one deck, one breach deck in September, that's pretty small. I, yeah. I'm, I don't. It it would be one thing if like breach had like a consistent fifteen to twenty percent of top eights after, let's say from March on. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Yes. That's a really good point. Um, it's the, a great it's, card and and it has spawned a really good deck and a variant of another maybe, but. Breach averaged eight eight point two two percent of top eights over the entire year, which is a respectable number for the whole year. Yes, but it's it's. I mean, where does that fit in the overall average for the year? It's probably fourth or fifth place, isn't it? Around there, we'll talk about when we get to the decks. Yeah, it's around there. It's cl- it's closer to yeah. it's closer to second than fifth. Yeah. We'll put it that way. But okay, fair enough. So the. I think there's one other factor here which we haven't really gotten into in detail before right now, and that is our Twitter feedback. We got, t- as of the time of this recording, what I counted was 11 votes for a particular card that were clear votes for one or another. Yeah. And it's 
almost unanimous. Loris got 10 out of those 11 votes from our audience. And I think there's another factor at play here, which I always like to point out when you talk to these, you have these discussions. And that is when you look back at the year 2020, a couple of years from now, you know, you're going to be that. Okay. That was the year that COVID blah, blah, blah. We all learned how to play online. We all learned how to quarantine. That was the year of companions. That was the year that Luris came out and, exp- and blew up the whole world, you know, for a month and a half or so. And it was all we could talk about for a while. And yeah, Underworld Breach came out that year too, but you know, it didn't really break out until later in the year. And then maybe, maybe it took till 2021 or 22 for Underworld Breach to really become dominant. <laughs> yeah. But I just can't shake the notion that when you look back at this year, this is Luris's year. Yes. I'm going to give my moxie to Loris. Let's end this conversation. I'm, you go ahead and vote. What's your vote? I am there with you. I give my moxie to, moxie to Loris of the Dream Den as well. Congratulations, Loris. Now, let's hope that we can get Loris back in modified form. Because I'd love to have her uh, back. Yes. Good point. It's not part of our awards, but I'm with you. Lur- Loris is no longer deserving of a ban in vintage. Thanks to uh, our Twitter followers for aiding us in this. I think yeah. if, since it follows on this, why don't we reverse the order and do deck next, and then we'll do set third. You got it. You got it. So, Let, Steve, since you assembled all of the data on yeah on the metagame, I want you to set up what do you yes. think the the real tenants are of the, the deck So, I've vote. talked about the oscillations over the year. Let me just give you the end of the year aggregate numbers. I've also told you the, percent, the win percentages, which I can revisit. But let me give you the percentage of top eights for the year. January to December, by deck, bottom line, here it is. P.O. had the largest percentage of top eights on the year at 12%. That's it. That's the top. (laughs) That's kind of funny to think about in comparison to what we saw last year. Um, If I recall correctly, oh yeah, that's right. You know what's funny, Kevin? The best performing deck last year, it's 17.4% of top eights, was Dredge. And then the next yeah. was fourteen and a half percent with shop shops, and then fourteen point two percent PO. So nothing even got close to that this year, which I think suggests a healthier metagame. PO was twelve percent, so PO was the overall most top eights. And by the way, let's just point out: let's remember zero PO in top eights in December. Zero. Zero. Yeah, wow. it was all. It was most heavily loaded in April and May, followed by October and to a lesser extent, August. The next, there was a tie for second place in most top eights, which is between Jeskai, Xerox, and Breach at 8.22%. 62 decks out of 500 and... Sorry, 754. And by the way, my deck, those decks do include the the 2019 Vintage Championship that happened in in, uh, Mar- in January. It just doesn't include the... Uh, the season three qualifier top eight, which I do have those deck lists, those deck top eight decks, thanks to um, Justin Gennari. If I added them in, it would not materially change it. Well, there were two Just Guys in that top eight, so it would put Just Guy a slight hair above Breach if I added them in. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so I guess Just Guy is second, technically, in percentage of top eights, and then Breach is third. Um, and then. What's fourth, you ask? <laughs> well, fourth is tied between Bug, not Bug R, Bug at seven, this is at 7.82% or 59 copies between Doomsday and Bug. So just 
a few copies less than uh, Breach. Breach, three copies left actually is Doomsday and Bug, and then two copies left behind that is Bug R at seven and a half percent, and then there's nothing else above seven and a half percent. So, in ordinal ranking, it, it's it's PO number one, Jeskai number two, uh, Breach number three. Then four and five are tied between Doomsday and Bug, and then six is Bug R. And then if you want me to tell you the seventh, the seventh is no. Golo Shops. We don't need to go. Well, that's it. We don't need to go further than it's Golo than Shops, that. and then everything else is behind that. So I'd like to point to our Twitter results here before earlier in this discussion we did than we did for the card because we got to my eyes five six we got uh yeah looks like another eleven votes for a deck. But it was a little more noisy than the the card, right? Luris was 10 out of 11 votes for best card. In the case of deck, we had two votes for Luris Breach, specifically the Breach deck with Luris. Yeah. We had another two votes that just said Underworld Breach. It's a little a little vague, but I, I think the implication is, is that's post-Luris Breach, but it's not entirely clear. Yeah. The, so that's the, you know, Breach with or without Luris gets the most votes. Second in line is Doomsday with three votes. Then third is Dredge, and then a vote for Hogak Vine, and also a vote for the Riddler, which was a joke. So it's pretty interesting <laughs> that the our audience is a little more diluted on what they think the best deck of the year is. But it's pretty clear that it's one of either it's some combination of Breach, Doomsday, or uh, a, a bizarre deck. Kevin, um, number one for 2020 is PO at 12%. Number two... If, is the I combined Hogak and Hollowvine because there's some overlap in them, but if you combine them as a general archetype, because it goes from Hollowvine and then evolves into Hogak Vine, right? They're at they're at nine point five five percent or seventy two copies. Then the third most played archetype um, is is Jeskai Xerox at around over about eight point three percent. There's sixty four copies. Um, if you include the season three qualifier, and then fourth is uh, is is Doomsday at eight point two two percent of top eights, no. and then no, that's the wrong line. What's the wrong line? Oh, sorry. Fit, somebody say it one more time. And then fourth is is Breach at eight point two two percent. So that's tied with no no. Jeskai has two tied more with copies. Jeskai. Two more copies because the qualifier has sixty four. Um, oh, I see. And then. So the yeah the the most played is PO and then the Hogak sorry the the Hollowvine decks inclusive of Hogak which is a very different archetype um nine and a half percent and then Jeskai and then Breach and then behind that is we don't need to go a t- well a tie between Doomsday and Bug and then then Golos Shops so we don't need to go deeper Golos. than four places Dr- Dredge and Golos yeah so sorry Dredge and Golos Shops so. Um, the problem is that I, in the data I have here, I have Hollowvine aggregated with Hogak, so I can't I can't quickly disaggregate that. So it's pretty clear, though. There's so you're talking about a t- more but, than a two and a half percent lead for PO. But but again, um, with PO having zero copies in December and their copies being mostly boosted because of, in April and May because of Luris. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's okay. I mean. Hollowvine had zero copies in January because it didn't exist. <laughs> if we're talking about year-end yeah. numbers, we can't get wrapped around the axle on any. Uh, 
well, why didn't it exist though? I mean, wasn't created. It's worth yet. noting this Holovine <laughs> has no cards printed. Well, this this Holovine deck has no cards printed in the year 2020. I, I would not. And so the fact that it quote unquote didn't exist in January is a is a little overselling the notion that we could have been playing it then. I can't. And it I, wasn't good enough. I can't rank the best. I get. I can't rank this best deck of the year. A deck that did that had zero four one one two three copies through the first six months of the year. Sorry. Uh, unless the only fair. way I could do that is if it had just gangbusters the rest of the year. But it really didn't. What 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 Hogak Vine had was a great quarter. A breakout quarter in quarter three. Yeah, July, yeah. August, and September. And then a middling last quarter. So, yeah. Despite having the best quote-unquote win percentage, what? why don't you give us the data for the tournament wins for the year? Let's see if that helps well, break through anything. Yeah. So the tournament winners for the year, number one by a strong margin is PO. Out of 94, it had 17 it had 16 wins, which is 17%. Wow. And now we're aggregating all the the um Holovine and Hogak Vine decks here and it's still those two combined still only had four wins. So a lot of top 4%. eights but not many wins. That's the thing. Yeah. There's yeah. there's a log jam in second place for wins. Because Dredge, Doomsday, Bug, and Breach all have 10 each. Wow. So you'll note that PO had 16 as a log jam at 10 for second place, and then the next one is yeah. 7 7. So it's pretty clear that in, on most meaningful metrics, this is PO's year. The problem is PO has a sub 50 win percentage, 49.8% win percentage. Yeah, well, but I mean, how big is that range? The extremes of that range are only fifty-three. <laughs> I, I'm right? not going to give. P- I cannot give a win, Moxie, to a deck that has zero top eights in December. You got to finish strong, man. You, <laughs> zero in December well, and a sub fifty win percentage. I hear what you're saying. I mean, there's a problem with that though, and that's because no one had a decent month in December. I mean, there's a three-way tie for first place. <laughs> how are you gonna How are you gonna pick a winner out of? Out of Jeskai, Dredge, and Breach, when they all had just eight wins in December or eight eight appearances in December, yeah, I don't, I don't need a win. I don't think you can. I don't think you can lean hard on any one month, right? No, I agree. You, you just can't. I agree with that. But what I'm saying is disqualifying if you have it, it. You know, I mean, it's like saying, you know, what it's like. It's like saying, Kevin, um, this quarterback is great, except in the Super Bowl, you know, or like except in the playoffs. You know, you got to be good in the playoffs. <laughs> If you're, you know, you got to be good. Now, I know I December consider, isn't the playoff. I don't consider December to be the playoffs. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, well, you know what? If you want to consider so something the playoffs, it, it, you could wait October more because that's when the three eternal weekends. And that was that was PO's best month outside of the Loris period. So that's an now, argument. So in now favor we're now we're talking about a. Yeah, now we're talking about a meaningful metric. Is when when the when the chips are all on the line, you've got the largest online tournaments in history. Which deck performs the best? I love Justin Gennari's, uh meme, Photoshop meme, where it says it's like an anime thing, and it says, "No one expects me." Ha! It's me, Po. <laughs> it's, I love that one. Um, you know, we've had we've had this discussion in the past, yeah. haven't we, Steve? About how when when good players are faced with high stakes, what deck comes out in the last couple of years? Well, it's PO. I think, yeah, we said that. I think the problem with this year is there isn't a good alternative to it. The breach just looks very flawed. Um, and the other decks that we discussed, I mean, the, on your list and the list that you had of the top, there's basically five candidates once you get to the top 
Mm-hmm. I don't. I think we can. You know, it's it's breach. It's or sorry. It's PO dredge doomsday bug and breach. Mm-hmm. I think hollow vine is cute, but four wins is just not enough. That's that's like that sounds smacks to me like a deck that does really well on top eights, but if you can't win the big one, I'm ruling that out despite its slight win percentage advantage. Yep. Well, and the the five that you just listed are the top five in terms of wins. I I think to yeah. So so if I say no to PO because it has a terrible December and it didn't it didn't even win one of the three eternal weekend tournaments. The three eternal weekend tournaments were won by were won by Doomsday. Well, assuming we count <laughs> Andreas's win. Yeah. Uh, Doomsday Dredge and what was the third one? The third one? I don't remember. I can look. Hold on. Because the official winner for Andreas's goes down to shops for Dave Lance. So it was Bug, Dredge and Doomsday. Yeah, so Karsh. Yeah, I, I'm gonna well, to Doomsday Dredge and Bug or Bug Dredge and Car Shops. I'm. This is really tough. This is this is this really is really very tough. difficult. Like, uh, how can, there's no way we can give it to Doomsday. Doomsday really? had no top eights in the first quarter. Yeah, but Doomsday is Doomsday, Doomsday's the same as and it's the same story as um as the other one we were just discussing Holovine. as Hollowvine. Yeah. It just had one good quarter. <laughs> yeah. I mean it just had one good four month period is what is what doomsday the rest of the, the year it's non existent or middling. Worse than yeah, middling. it didn't three, it didn't two, finish three, very four, strong either. You know? It has slightly more elongate period than Hollowvine, but it did seem to follow the same pattern. Yeah. Wow. I mean Doomsday just has not earned it. It was a nice breakout deck for a period, but and Dredge is just uh okay. a, a consistent I've, performer with one good month. I I I can't I've, give it to I've Dredge. decided what I'm going to do. I've decided. I mean, there is a good case for you know what? There is a decent case for Bug R. Not even Bug, but like like in the middle months of the year, that Bug deck just did not go away. Although terrible in December. I, so I've it had decided a, a zero in December and it had a one in April because it was so one of the things before before I give him my decision, one of the things that factors into my support for PO is that it was the deck that that benefited greatly from Luris. Yeah. Which means it's it was had an amplifying effect uh, on Luris and Luris on it. Yes. But then it came out in strength in the most important month of the year in October. Yeah. The only other archetype that was close in October was Bug. Yeah. And Bug had a had a, a below average performance in the first half of the year. Two, three, three, four, two, two. I mean, Bug didn't have a good year. I. It just had a good October. I think you know what I think is the strongest case in, for PO. Is the massive gap in tournament wins? That gap in yeah. tournament wins is much greater percentage-wise than the gap than the uh, either the win percentage or the top eight appearances, top eight penetration. That's remarkable to me. Yeah, when if you if you want to win a big vintage tournament, there's just no denying that that's that remarkable. Player skill and archetype familiarity, notwithstanding, PO is the go-to deck if you want to win a big vintage tournament. Except it didn't win any of the P- Eternal Weekend tournaments. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, okay, so why don't you give away... But it won like all the other tournaments in October. <laughs> have you decided then on your moxie? Are you giving it to PO? I have decided. I I have a lot of affinity for some of these other decks. I think that it was a breakout performance for 
Hollow Vine and Hogak Vine and, and Doomsday at different points throughout the year. But I think you have to give it to the tried and true PO and have the most consistency throughout the year. So, Kevin, I am going to give it to Breach. Let me tell you why. Number one, it has the right. it has the second highest win percentage, if I recall correctly. It almost almost fifty three percent, just behind Hogak Vine. Um, yes. Number two, very strong win percentage. Number two, I think it's a very good representation of the year because it 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 moved with all the twists and turns of the year. People were experimenting in the first few months of the year. Everyone knew Breach was broken, but we couldn't quite figure out how to break it. Yeah. Um, it surged with um, P, uh, with uh, Loris, and I think actually at the end it would have proven to be the superior Loris deck over Po slightly. I think Breach was just a little better. I could be wrong about that, but I think at the end of the day it would. I think it, it the reason it didn't. If we knew what we knew about it now, and had Loris come out like in January, I think it would have Breach would have been the best. The se- the third thing about it is that it's tied in a, in his four-way tie for most tournament wins and um for second place <laughs> yeah it's tied in second place for four-way tie though for second place um yes. it also just did well throughout the whole year it had you know aside from january and march where it disappeared and july where it f- Wait. september where it fell to two it had a pretty consistent finish through the year and it was was it the th- fourth m- most played archetype? I guess third potentially if you disaggregate Hollow Vine and Hogak Vine. At eight point two two percent of top eights, I think it's just pretty consistent through the year. Incredibly broken. I think it's also well positioned against a lot of good decks. Very good. I think yeah. it's like one of the few decks that can beat Doomsday. Um, I, I think it incorporates Sprite Dragon. Well, and it's it's a representative printing of the year, and as you said, like reinforced and boosted by Loris. So I'm gonna I'm gonna call, I think Breach is the deck of 2020. You used one of my favorite um, uh, metrics uh, against me there. The um, I I hadn't said so far, I hadn't considered in our deck discussion here about when you're gonna think about this year, what's the deck that you're gonna think about from this year? And I would posit that the deck you're gonna think about is not. PO. Yeah. It's gonna PO might have been in first place on a couple of very important metrics, wins and overall top eights. But you're right. This is the year of breach. Not only because it was printed, but it was printed early in the year. Yeah, the beginning. And the good news is is it's it's at your come December, breach is tied for first place in terms of total top eights, right? With eight. And that's important. That's that's relevant. It wasn't a flash in the pan. Luris was the biggest possible flash in the pan. And it didn't just have like one breakout month. It had a couple of good months in the middle part of the year. May, it was in second place. August, it was in first place. It's a perennial. But then consistent, yeah. consistent performance, you know, six, seven, yes. eight at the end of the year. That's strong performance. Yeah. Whereas Doomsday and waned so, and waxed. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you mentioned January. I just want to make it clear it that breach only had six days to yeah. exist in January. Yeah. So the, the zero that it has in January for top eights is can't be held against it. Um, it did, it was a slow burn, but, and so the, you know, the one and the two in February and March is, is stands out. But once we've kind of got our energy behind it and once we figured some things out and then Luris gave it a jump start, 
yeah, I think it's I think it's a good card. I think you're right. I think all things being equal, if you look at this this year, this is the year of breach. And so I'm comfortable giving my moxie to breach as well. Wow. What a what a a curveball there. <laughs> what a turn that took. I persuaded well, it, it, you. A very compelling a very compelling argument on your part. Wow. What a year. All right. What a year indeed. So let's talk about set. Our set of the year. Now, by implication, set of the year is a new set, just like it is with card, right? Yes. Because if it wasn't, we would continue alpha. to give it to Alpha every year. <laughs> <laughs> Wins again. Uh, so, <laughs> once again, with a mere total domination on set of the year, Alpha. Okay. Um, there's really only two contenders in this year, right? There's We don't need to beat around the bush. It's either Theros or Ikoria. I don't, and just for reminder, Ikoria brought us the companions. Sorry, what? Well, I I think that the set that that had Commander Legends with uh, opposition agent and Hall Breacher, the some point that could be a consideration, but it just can't. And in other years, it would have been in the top the short list, but we didn't have enough yeah. runway with them, and and there's just such, such standouts yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. So Ikoria brought us the commanders, the commanders. Ikoria brought us the companions. <laughs> yeah. And Theros brought us Thassa's Oracle, Underworld Breach, and Soul Guide Lantern. Ikoria also brought us Sprite Dragon. So wow, this yeah. one, I think, is a fascinating comparison, right? It, it To some extent, it comes down to Luris versus Breach, to some extent. Yeah. Because Ikoria is, you know, the, the rest of Ikoria is uh, other companions, like Lutri, who hasn't become a, a true staple of the format by any stretch. You know, Lutri is still just on the fringe right now. Yeah. And then the other standout card in Ikoria is Sprite Dragon, which is, uh, I think, a staple of the format. And so it makes the set comparison really difficult to finagle. Very. When you've got the ultimate flash in the pan in Luris and Companions in general, combined with a real strong staple in Sprite Dragon. But then you look at Theros, and we just had our our elongated discussion about what it means to impact a year, right? And Underworld Breach and Thassa's Oracle have just combined for an undoubted impact to this whole year. If you aggregate the Doomsday and Breach data, which is a silly comparison, really, but if you aggregate Doomsday and Breach, they quickly jump up to number one, you know, on the list over the core over any other archetype yeah. over the year, even PO. So, so, and so we can make these votes, I think fairly quick. What's your vote for set? I think I'm actually giving Icoria some votes in the negative for how much problem it was for vintage. Ah, and, and I'm a, a little bit of bleed over for the rest of magic here, but in the vintage context, specifically the fact that we had a, a way overpowered card in Luris a broken mechanic in Companions, a banning, and then a rules change that has left us lingering with an inappropriate banning at this point, because Luris doesn't need to be banned anymore. I think the sum total of those things is that Ikoria was actually a net negative on the format, and I wish I wish they had tested it properly and done some other things to make it better for us. I think that in total, Theros is the better set, a net positive affecting several archetypes Two of them especially, but then another solid sideboard card in, in Soul Guide Lantern. I think Theros is the winner for me. 
I am going to say Theros as well. I think when you're talking about year performance, again, it's not how did you perform over two months? Yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> right. how did you do over the course of the year? And when it really mattered. Um, you don't give mm-hmm. the MVP to, you know, a, a quarterback who has a great September, you give it to them, <laughs> you know, when they have a great November and December. So right. um, that's, that's the way I'm going to go again. I think it's clearly Theros. All right. Awesome. And that brings us to the most squirrely of the list, which is always also the most fun. And that's the best story of the year. Now, we didn't prime the pump with our audience at all on this Twitter poll. It wasn't a poll in the proper sense. It was just, what do you think is the best story? And the good news is our, our audience is quite observant and they had some, um, you know, common threads in their responses. So let me just list a couple of things here. On the list of stories for the year is online champs and other events, referring to the fact that we played Eternal Weekend and a bunch of Gen Con tournaments, other things including packs, uh, all online. Uh, there was one vote from MTG Kobe, which is nice, which was specific to Justin Gennari's personal support for the format. I liked that vote. We have the Companions slash Luris as a collective topic. We have the first power level ban in Vintage in roughly 25 years. And we have bannings for racism, representation, and inclusion. Those were the things that came up on Twitter. Is there anything, Steve, that you would add to that list? It's an excellent list. Uh, it's difficult to choose from. Um, but I, I would say, though, I think that the Lurus Companions thing, Companion thing, has a. So the online champs thing is more elongate than that, right? It's You talked about how it's unlocked and stocked accounts, Eternal Weekend, Gen Con mm-hmm. packs, right? It's the whole migration to online play. I think yes. the um, the Lurus thing is similarly elongate because it's about the printing, abuse, banning, and then errata. And it's still unresolved because that card still, un, you know, not banned. And, Lutri's still seeing a little bit of play. So I think that that, that storyline bo- is both more meat on the bone to it than just a simple Dolores, case of Loris, right? Like it's a Sherlock Holmes short story. It does. <laughs> um, it's an, it's, I think it's got yeah, a longer... It does. Companions is, yeah, is a longer is shorthand tale. for a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, potentially more companions down the road, too. So um, yes. I think there's more to it than that. I, I think these are good. I think... I think basically probably comes down to the 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 three three stories the the um the discussions around racism and representation the companions Loris Fallout and then the online champs I think those are the biggest three stories and you have to choose between one yeah and I do think the 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 discussions that you alluded to that we analyzed in some detail earlier in the show around inclusivity that's a very important issue for the year. At the same time, it's not a vintage specific issue. The bannings don't impact vintage in any significant way. The issue is broader uh, for all of magic. And I think more important for the bigger picture in magic than they are for just vintage. Like it touches our format for the many reasons we alluded to already. And we have a responsibility to, to take that in and understand it and appreciate it and integrate it into our view for the, our, our, community at the same time i don't feel like it's a vintage story yeah well what what do you think kevin you, you, you experienced uh, the eternal weekend mean, firsthand how do you weigh that against yeah. the companion discussion the i feel the <clears throat> notion that you just described about these issues spreading greater than this year is well made it's a good point 
I feel like the changes that have happened to online tournaments are actually just the beginning of a cultural change for for magic in general. I think it's part of a continuum of changes this year because there's been an enormous uptick, just a, I don't know how many thousands of percent increase in online play from a visual standpoint, meaning webcam magic. There's been a huge uptick in webcam magic this year. I know you and I have both benefited from that, right? You're playing your Alpha League fully via webcams, right? Yeah. And I've been playing EDH on the and, regular as and well. And I played Old School 95. And you played Old School. See, there yeah. you go. So you and I are personally benefiting from this this cultural shift and i think that yeah while it is a great thing and it's something that's overdue vis-a-vis enabling online play to a significant degree as well as enabling the unlocked accounts right the fully stocked accounts to be used for a, a, a modest fee i think that was a big watershed moment this year and we should never go back the, the pandemic <laughs> right? and all of that at the yeah. same time as yeah at the same time as you said it's not unique to this year it's that is, it's just the beginning of a thing that we should probably be doing more of in 2021 and beyond. Like this should just grow from here. I do feel like I'm let, I feel less strongly about the way you articulated the companions being a long-term issue. I feel like the companions are a 2020 issue. You're right to say that we will have more companions in the future, but because of the rules change, they're not going to be nearly as explosive. There's not going to be another 2020 set of companions, you know, in a couple of years. There will be more when we return to Ikoria, almost undoubtedly, but they're not going to blow up magic the way that the 2020 companions did, the way they had to just overhaul, you know, all the implications that we talked about in other episodes about their testing, you know, and how it's shown a bright light on R&D's practices, their whole approach to testing magic cards, you know, in a tournament setting, how it's shown a light on the fact that that's fundamentally flawed. I think companions and Luris, as a small, as a significant sliver of that from the vintage standpoint, are the story of this year. I agree. Because it represents so much. I agree. I think that the first banning, breaking the seal on banning in vintage in 24 years yeah. is, is enormous. Um, it is. And it, yeah, and it brought so much interesting things to the fore that hadn't been considered, so many facets of magic that we could never have anticipated. I think it's... Yeah, the, our... our- your and my abil- collective inability to fully appreciate the the significance of eliminating variance yeah. to the degree that companions do, yeah, was humongous. And the card advantage, you know, of the gained, we just yeah. totally underestimated that. It, it affected almost every aspect of the game, really. Yeah, <laughs> really, mechanically, all the mechanical design and development aspects, at least. I think it's the story of the year. There are lots of yeah, great stories. Yeah, I just can't but, deny it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I just think it's undeniable. I agree. <laughs> well, there you have it. So let's review so our Moxie awards. Our, are our Moxies? Sorry, I was going to say our Moxies are rarely unanimous between you and me. I don't know. I'd have to go back and do a study, but most years you and I do not agree on all four Moxies. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Last year we didn't, and the year before I don't think we did. So the fact that you and I have come to a unanimous vote on these is, I think, noteworthy in and of itself. Well, you were swayed so by my brilliant argument on behalf of Breach. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. But hey, that's why you know that's why we do these things. That's why we have these discussions. That's part of the fun. I'm I'm open to being swayed. So our moxies for 2020, the year that was 2020, for Card Luris of the Dream Den for Mycoria. For deck, Underworld Breach. For set, 
Theros Beyond Death, and for story, let's just call it Companions and their <laughs> many, many facets. <laughs> what a year. Well, Kevin, I I thoroughly enjoyed having you as a friend for this year, and uh, this was a tough year on everyone, but um, our massive, epic 100, 100th episode was a delight to go through, and I'm looking forward. I'll tell you what. I'm really looking forward. I hope we can get this vaccine distributed quickly enough because I'm really looking forward to playing Eternal Weekend with paper next year if we can get there. Fingers crossed. Uh, well, I I share that sentiment, but it feels it feels awfully optimistic at this point. I'm sorry to say. Um, I, I too yearn for the days of being able to play in person with you and everyone else. Uh, many of our listeners, uh, you know who you are. The the prospect of that seems so daunting and frightening and so desirable yeah. <laughs> yet at this point. It's this strange it's a strange concoction. Yeah. I have legitimately played more vintage and discussed more vintage lately than I would have been otherwise, I think, thanks to a little bit of playing online in different forms. And Eternal Weekend like it or not, was a, a real highlight for me personally and for the community, I think, this year. At the same time, this will forever go down as the year when so much tragedy happened. So much tragedy befell our world. And it's going to be hard to tease out in the long run. It's going to be hard to see this year for the silver linings. Yeah. But there have been a few. What a bittersweet end to a year it is. I just want to say thanks to our audience for hanging in there. I mean, I know... Over the course of the last couple of months, so many of you have written to us and said, hey, is the show on hiatus? Well, it turns out we actually generated more content for this show in the last the last quarter of this year than in any other quarter before, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, it, it was just very difficult to record and to assemble and to edit and put out there for all of you. But hopefully by the time you're hearing this, you will have seen and heard of episodes 100 and... Well, 99, 100, and 101, and it will all have been worth it. Thank you to Kevin thank- for the hard work, the hard labor. Uh, uh, it's a labor of love. That's why this show continues to not have any sponsors, for example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're just doing it for the love of the game. Uh, and I, I want to reiterate what you said, too, Steve. I'm thankful for you and to have this as a thing to look forward to in practice in our lives. It's It's great for that reason alone. Well... I know this feels like we're in a position to have to try and summarize the terrible thing that was the year 2020 here in our podcast about a tiny sliver of a tiny game. But uh, I just want to say that I'm grateful for all the aspects of it, including the people who are listening right now. So thank you all. I want to wish you, Kevin, and everyone who's listening a very happy new year. Here's to 2021. Cheers. Ha, 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 ha.